You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. The night of the senior prom, the Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. And everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house her crazy mother. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date for the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know, I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <coughs> Carrie. <coughs> a new film by Brian De Palma. Based on the chilling bestseller. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Keith Gordon. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jamie Duvall. Thank you for having me back. 
On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are wrapping up Shocktober 2021 with a look at Brian De Palma's Carrie. Based on the novel by Stephen King, the film stars Sissy Spacek as the titular Carrie White. No relation. She's a young woman who has lived under her mother's thumb and religious fervor. When she experiences her first period, she also experiences a new ability to move objects with her mind. Of course, we will be spoiling Carrie... I'm frankly, I'm curious how many of you people have not seen the movie. If you downloaded the episode, I'm assuming that you saw the movie. But if you haven't, turn off the podcast, go watch the movie, coming back, we'll still be here. So, Jamie, when was the first time you saw Carrie and what did you think? I probably saw it right before I was a teenager. I recall I was something like nine or ten years old when I first saw the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's probably wow. probably wow. why I am who I am today, the, the <laughs> disturbing individual. And I remember it scared me to the bone. And the only movie that ever came close to invoking that kind of fear in me was the third act of Carrie. And I watched that pretty soon after. So I was, I was a youngin when I saw it. And Keith, how about yourself? I mean, I know I saw it when it first came out. I don't remember the exact day. It was, it was 76, but I don't remember what time of the year. So I would have been, you know, I was 15 at the time. I remember that I thought it was great. I don't remember. I mean, one of the things that, and we'll get into it later, that this evoked in me, this experience of revisiting it, is how much our experiences of film change over time. Uh, and what we see, we miss before, feel differently. But, you know, I always love the film. Uh, I think it was the first De Palma film I ever saw. And it was, you know, very remarkable and beautifully made and, but I think I just saw the movie theater in New York whenever it opened. Uh, you know, I, I was at that point already a huge movie geek. So I was just going to everything that came out and certainly anything by an important director. And Brian was somebody I was already, already aware of by reputation, but I don't think I'd seen any of his films. So that was, I think, the first introduction. I know, of course, like everybody, that the, the scare at the end hugely affected me. And I know I thought the acting was great and I thought it looked amazing. I don't remember the scene by scene, you know, and I would think I remember it differently because I hadn't seen the film in, in a good 25 years before this, you know, I'd seen it a lot when I was younger. I saw it before and then I worked with Brian a couple of times. And so I saw, you know, a lot around when I was working with him and after I'd worked with him. And so I probably saw it eight or 10 times. And then I kind of felt like, well, I've seen it. And so I put it away and then I only, you know, I've always had the DVD and then Blu-ray and all, but I never sat down and watched it again. And so this was the first time in, 30 years maybe. And it's fascinating because I think my reaction to it was very different in some ways, much deeper now than it was then. I remember it as a horror movie and seeing it now, I had a very different, more emotional experience. I don't remember if I saw this one when I was in high school or not. It feels like I did, but I know for sure I took a class, uh summer class while I was at school it was a horror movie class. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So like all classes that I loved, I did terribly in it. I don't know why, but I think I ended up with like a B minus or something in horror, which, you know, shame on me. Right. But I distinctly remember we watched it on 16 millimeter and the shot of St. Sebastian was cut out, but I didn't know that it was cut out or I didn't remember that it was cut out. And then the professor, I think it was Ira Konigsberg was incensed about how they had mangled this print. So he had to go out and find a different print and then brought that in a few weeks later just to show us 
the shot of St. Sebastian because I, I don't know if it was a censored version. I've gone and I've looked up how the movie has been censored over the years and, you know, in different countries and all that, but I can't find any sort of record that the St. the shot of St. Sebastian inside of the closet that that was ever cut out. But apparently the version I saw was nice and special and had that out of there. After that, I just fell in love with the movie. I remember really making a point to buy it on VHS from Suncoast Video, a letterbox version, because it was just so important to see the whole frame, because this film is absolutely beautiful. And especially this idea, you know, we'll talk a lot about the ending as we go along, but the idea of the ending being so much in that split screen, but then other parts of the movie that presage that bit, that they have so many of the split diopter shots, that they have a lot of people being framed inside of windows or other framing devices, that it's really just crucial that you see the entire film. So seeing a pan and scan version of this movie, fuck that. It it would be nightmarish to see not the full film. Yeah, I think of all the advantages, advances in home video technology, nothing was more important than getting away from pan and scan. I mean, yes, you know, if you look at a 4K compared to a DVD is a huge advantage. But I, I'm, I'm old enough that, yeah, a lot of my early movies were on VHS. And anything that was widescreen, anything that involved split screen, anything that involved careful framing was just nightmarish. I mean, it was just what a horrible way to see a film like this. And probably a lot of people saw it that way and thought, oh, that's what it looks like. I wouldn't be surprised if all of the split screen stuff, if they just made that so it went shot, reverse shot, rather than it actually both being on screen at the same time. That was the usual way they do it. Yeah, or and they would letterbox. back and forth. Oh, God. Or they would letterbox just certain sections of stuff, which was so weird, too. Would, like, suddenly you would get a letterbox section of a film, and then it would go back to full frame. It's like, whoa, what are you doing to me? Or else you just see the line in the center of the screen and nothing, nothing oh, yeah, to the yeah. right or the left. You're like, is this print scratched? What is this? Well, like those famous things of like two actors on either side of the screen and all you see are the their plant. hands holding cigarettes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the, the shot in heat, you know, but it's just like, you know, you can maybe see like De Niro, the tip of his nose, you know. <laughs> And we should note that this was the first Stephen King adaptation. This was way back when King was a very struggling writer. I think he was doing a lot of the Bachman books at this time. He was definitely selling his short stories to men's magazines. So he was this struggling writer. And I found it fascinating. I went back and reread the book and I had forgotten that. And I don't know why exactly he did this. He wrote the book, or the book came out, I should say, in 1974. The incident with Carrie is set in 1976, but then really the book takes place 10 years after that. It takes place in 1986. There's this whole idea of this uh, like wrapper to the book of all of these different points of view. There's the White Commission, which... I imagine it was kind of a play on the Warren Commission, which probably also appealed to De Palma, him being such a huge JFK conspiracy guy. There's that. There's uh, Snoo- Sue Snell has her own book. There are uh, excerpts from testimonies. And all of these things are from different time periods. And I think the latest one is 86, which was just such a strange way of doing it. But I kind of appreciated that 
he ended up doing it in that way. And it definitely gave you different points of view throughout the story. But then you had his point of view, this kind of like God's eye point of view, which is so important to the movie because we have God's eye shots throughout so much of this film. I love the way that this is is put together. I like the treatment, his handling of the story in the book. And I appreciate that uh, De Palma and uh, Paul Monash, is that the screenwriter? Uh, yeah, Lawrence D. Cohen, I believe it is, is the screenwriter. I got it totally wrong. Uh, I, pre- I appreciate how DePaul the screenwriter, streamlined uh, that uh, King's uh, version of the, the narrative because their movie is about the, the here and now. I mean, it feels more present. It doesn't feel like something that you're reflecting on later with the exception of that final scene. I think it makes it feel very vivid. From one of the interviews with the screenwriter, what he had already stripped it down somewhat when De Palma read his script. And then De Palma said, take, you know, he had, but he had left in some of the commission stuff and it had left, you know, and, and it was Brian who kind of pushed him to say, we have to get really just down to the, to the core of the story and, and lose all the framing devices. So there was a process, but, but it sounded like, like Lawrence Cohen had already gone a lot, a lot that way. I think it's important to note that there were no expectations of this movie in preparation for another project I'm working on. I interviewed a distributor named, uh, named Joseph Brenner. He basically distributed a lot of smut and he was given Carrie to distribute as, as the second in a, in a double bill. The fact that De Palma produced this amazing work of art when, when all the expectations pointed away from that is, is, is pretty phenomenal. United artists who made it, you know, made it on a tiny budget. I mean, it was a million eight, which, okay. A million eight at, in its time was more, but it still would be about six now, seven now. I mean, it was a very small budget for a quote unquote studio film. And, you know, their attitude was, this is a weird little horror film that we're just doing kind of for fun. It's not, I don't think anybody around it. And I've even heard Brian say, and, and, you know, yeah, we didn't have any sense at the time we were making something that would be seen as a classic movie 40 years later or, you know, that, you know, we were just trying to make a really good horror movie. And I think it, it kind of caught everybody by surprise because it had that remarkable thing that sometimes great filmmakers do where you create a completely pop culture success. At the same time, you also kind of create a work of art and you get that both the art side and the and the populist side going at the same time. And this film did that. But I think those things often you don't see them coming. A lot of the time in film history, the films that have that impact are not the ones that everybody waited to have that impact from. The ones where they set out for this is going to be an important film with important, you know, having asterisks on either side of it. It's like, yeah, maybe not, you know, like, okay, great. It definitely happened with something like Gone with the Wind. But yeah, a lot of the time it's just happy accidents. And yeah, this was one of the, I love the story that uh, De Palma tells about how we kept on coming in with a budget of a million eight. And they said, we're not making it a million eight. It's got to be a million six. And I said, you know, just like my get to know your rabbit experience, I said, Guys, that's what it costs. It's a million eight. And they said, fine. And then they started moving the, the furniture out of my office. The movie had been canceled. So I went home that weekend and thought about it, and I somehow took, came back and said, you know what, I've been thinking about it. If we move this and change this around, maybe we can do it for a million six. And they said, great, it's a go. Uh, and, of course, it cost a million eight. And just how 
much he worked with the cast before they even started to shoot and just that he had a really long prep time before he was able to even start to shoot the film. I really think that that helped too, because he had the whole thing, you know, he's, he's a big Hitchcock guy. And I love how Hitchcock was always just like the shooting is the biggest slog, you know, like the preparation, all of that is the fun part. And I think De Palma really had fun with this, the stories of him having storyboards up all around in one of his rooms at his house and that he was able to visualize everything that was going to happen before it happened. Not that it actually came out that way. There was definitely some different things that happened during the editing of the film, but that he had those ideas already. I think that really helps play into just how well this film comes together because there's, there's not a lot of fat, if any fat on this movie. It just clocks along so quick and just a determined pace. He did the same thing on Dress to Kill because we actually ended up rehearsing in his apartment and it was remarkable. He had the walls just covered with these index card drawings uh, and they were very crude. I mean, you know, a lot of people, a lot of directors either hire somebody to do these beautiful, you know, you know, well-rendered drawings or they are great artists themselves. Writings were very simple. They were like just stick figures, but it was every single moment in the movie and he would move things around. And it was, it was amazing. He walked in and there was the film all over the wall. So clearly that was just something that was part of his working method. And I've never seen anybody do it quite that way, but boy, what a thing to be able to do to walk into a room and be able to go, Oh, there's my film and, and contemplate it and think about it, move things around, rethink them. It was a, a major like lesson in filmmaking, you know, way before the film ever started to get made. When you watch a De Palma movie, you can s- certainly tell that uh, he he has visualized every moment on the screen, and the production is about executing that. You know, but there are different directorial approaches, and I think they're all valid. I mean, there are some people that view uh, filmmaking as um, you're making a documentary about that day. And there are others that, that want to make sure that they know what the movie is exactly before they embark upon it. So, and I think great filmmaking comes out of both of those approaches. And, and everybody, it's also like what, what your strengths are. I mean, I, I you know, I, not that I would put myself in the class of, you know, a Brian De Palma director, but, you know, I, I can't draw at all. So I ended up, I do massive story, uh, storyboards. My storyboards are word storyboards. I basically do shot lists that describe the light, describe the look, describe, but, but I can't draw it. If I try to draw it, I mostly just gotten chuckles from the crew. So uh, when they look at it and go, what, is this a giraffe? What is this supposed to be? You know, for me, I find if I put it into words, but try to draw a picture of the words, that's how I can do it. But yeah, I think every director is different. There are some directors that really want the jazz of it, of not having it planned out, of, of doing it in the moment and just kind of seeing what inspiration takes them. And I think that takes a very specific kind of genius, but there are people who do that brilliantly. The De Palma set pieces are complicated and they need to be orchestrated in that fashion, the way he approaches it. And then, but you, and you mentioned Spielberg. I mean, Spielberg, obviously when you're dealing with the complexity of visual effects, you need to know what you're doing. And then you hear Spielberg goes on the, the, the D-Day set of private Ryan that morning he doesn't know how he's going to shoot it. You know, it's just a remarkable, uh, remarkable quality. We'll talk about the remakes and sequel and these kind of things later on, but that the, at least I think 
two of the, I keep wanting to say like remakes, but like remake and sequel are all kind of all together in the same package for me in this, uh, because the sequel also feels a little remake-ish as well as being a sequel. But they try to capture some of the things that are in the book that aren't in this 76 De Palma film, including this idea of this rain of stones. There's this whole story of how Carrie, when she was very young, I want to say like three years old, goes to her neighbor's house and her neighbor is this young girl who's laying out and she's got um, a, like a bikini on and Carrie is just like, Oh, what are, you know, those doing a, what, what are your breasts basically? Like she calls them dirty pillows because that's what her mother calls them. And her mom sees all this going on and grabs her and brings her back in the house. And then there's all this yelling and screaming. And then a rain of stones falls onto the house and then that plays into the end of the film because there's, you can see stones. If you look carefully at the end of the movie, when the house is falling apart, that rain of stones comes back, but they don't really show it. And then when you see Sue come up in her dreams, all of those stones that are there kind of plays into that as well. I had heard that they had shot some of the rain of stone stuff, but it just didn't look right the way that the stones are falling and they couldn't obviously use real stones. And so they're bouncing and they just didn't have a good look to them. But I was very glad in one of the DVD extras that you can see a lot of shots from that. You see Carrie, you see Sissy Spacek dressed up to look even younger and you they actually had the girl next door cast and they actually shot all that stuff. But that's one of those great missing scenes. Like we'll never see what happened. I don't think they ever finished the effects for that stuff, but it is interesting too how much this was shaped in the editing room when it came to, you know, you can see if you look very careful, I think Joseph Eisenberg in his book about Carrie points out when certain shots seem to have been and that they will change as far as like what day, because to me, this kind of takes place. It feels like it takes place over about a week period of time. And you can see that there are certain outfits that will repeat or change. And it's just like flip flopping scenes and these kind of things. It all works perfectly for me. It's one of those, like I never noticed until I read the book and then I saw it when I was watching it, but I still don't care. It's like this flows so well. And, you know, I talked about that determined pace. It just feels like this movie is both inevitable and something that you don't want to have happen, especially the end bit of it, the, the prom. There are so many times, even now when I've seen this movie, probably a dozen times where I just feel like, why can't this change? Why can't this be a different movie? Like I want something to happen. I want the teacher to listen to Sue Snell and help her and defeat Chris and Billy, but it never happens. And you just, you continue down that, I don't want to say rabbit hole. You just continue to go over the cliff of this movie and you never can escape it. All right. Speaking of Joseph Eisenberg, let's go ahead and play an interview with him about his book studies in the horror film. Carrie, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into writing about film? You know, I just liked movies when I was younger. The way it started was with De Palma. I resaw Carrie at one of those kind of English departments. I wasn't in college, but I went to see it ever at the university because we have one here in Norman, OU. I really loved it and got obsessed with it and I was like, I want to read about him. So I got like a courtesy library card to our 
university's library, and I read the couple books I had about him, which weren't very satisfying. And I just started reading more and more criticism, and then eventually taught myself to write criticism. But I kind of disliked that academic style that was used. Because one of the things like you learn when you first start reading about De Palma is that he basically, in terms of academic criticism, was like considered like a misogynist and kind of a Hitchcock ripoff. That meant I spent a whole lot of time going, why are they writing this? Why do they think this? And it made me reject most of that criticism, especially the Freudian stuff. I don't know how you... I know you've had some of these Freudian academics on, and I like some of them. Like, you had Tanya Modleski on a couple times. I've read her stuff, and she has some insightful stuff, but I still spend a lot of times, like, questioning all that Freudian jargon. Then I wrote a piece about Carrie, and it was really long, an online magazine editor suggested that I flesh it out and make it a, a book of it. And I was like, well, I'm going to write a book about De Palma I'd want to read. It is such a great book. And I'm curious how you decided that you would concentrate more on Carrie than any of the other films. Because it's one of my favorite films. It just really got under my skin when I watched it. I'd seen it originally when I was much younger. I just thought it was kind of sleazy. Then on TV, I rediscovered the movie Sisters, and I thought, this is fantastic. What a really cool use of Hitchcock and other elements. And so I got obsessed with that, and then I watched Carrie, and it blew me away. And then I just was very obsessed with like the style of it and the way it was like structured and how De Palma would get his, his effects and the performances. I think the performances are probably better than just about any of his other movies. And that uh, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie are just give very original and great performances in it. I, th I guess that's why I focused on it. Although I really love Sisters and Obsession and Dress to Kill and Casualties of War. I think that one's very good, too. But that's pretty much why I picked Carrie, because I, I think I liked it best. I think it's his best movie. So what's the timeline as far as when you wrote that original piece versus when you actually say, okay, I'm going to write this book, and when does it come out? I wrote the piece in the spring of 2009, and then at the, starting at the... End of the summer of 2009, August, I, then I expanded it, started interviewing people, I went to the library and did like massive amounts of research, found some fascinating archives online, which you can't get now, I don't think. Pieces that were written at the time the movie came out, interviews with De Palma and stuff like that, and then I spent basically three years writing it. It was published in 2012. That's all I did was work and write on, and write that book for three years. And research it. It was t tedious. And then once it was finished, the publisher, I was going to do it where all those like incredibly long footnotes that you see were going to be end notes. He wanted them all to be footnotes. He wanted them, the footnotes to be like numbered per chapter. So it'd be one, one through whatever, one through whatever, one through whatever per chapter. And so I had to like pull, pry everything apart into chap, into text and then footnotes for him to put together again, which created all these typos. So that there are typos that you see in the book that I tried to have him fix that were created by this tedious restructuring, which I'm actually revising it now because I think I'm going to republish, republish it as a Kindle and, uh, it should be available in a paperback version too. So that'll be good. Yeah. Cause right now I think it's like really expensive. I didn't quite realize this, but the publisher that I went with, I think he deliberately creates collector's editions, so they're meant to be limited editions of it. Yeah, I was really shocked when I looked and saw the hardcover version is going for $200. I was like, wow, I only made like a 1000 bucks on the thing. How on earth did you manage to get a hold of all of these people that were involved with the film? I only 
interviewed four people. All the other interviews are from other interviews. Paul Hirsch is from Movie Geeks United, your friend. Jamie did a terrific interview. Uh, terrific, terrific. But the way I got with the Palmer was, have you ever read the, the book, The Devil's Candy? And so I contacted Julie Salomon, the chick that wrote it, because she has like an online site. And I was like, asked her, how would one go about getting an interview with DePaul to talk to him? For whatever reason, she's like, well, I'm having dinner with him tonight. I'll just ask him if he'll do it. That's how I got that interview. And he let me in every room for like an hour and a half. And uh, how did I get Lawrence Cohen? I think I contacted his agency, his agency or agent or whatever, and then they put me through to him, and he was really, really nice. Betty Buckley was kind of the same way. And then Marcia Nassiter, I contacted her through her real-time thing. She was very difficult, by the way. That interview didn't last very long because she started kind of insulting me. I don't know if you've ever had this happen as an interviewer, but you start out with all this preparation questions, and then they're just like, I don't want to talk about preparation. Just ask me exactly what you want to know. And then she would just cut me off and told me I should be more professional, that I needed to know a lot more stuff before I talked to people. I'm like, and like, lady, I know a whole lot. I just want to get your perspective. Apparently, other people have talked to her and it's been great. Maybe she just took a disliking me. I don't know. Eventually, she was just so, like, I started asking the more insulting questions about the production history, you know, just because I was like, and then she was like, I don't know any of this stuff, which is weird because she bought the rights to the book for United Artists and got behind Paul Monash and them, the, them producing it. So I wasn't sure why she was acting like she didn't know anything about it. I asked her, why, what made you interested in this book? And she's like, you know, it's it's an interesting book. <laughs> that was her answer. And I was kind of interested, too, like about, you know, because I think Carrie may be the first movie where menstruation is shown. Certainly that graphically. I don't think it's ever, because even in the remakes, they don't show it. Yeah, other than, like, health films, but even those are, you know, oh, and then you have this beautiful flower that's inside of your panty liner. So you see, menstruation is just the natural, normal process leading up to being a mother. Yeah, you don't have, like, a slow-motion picture of someone, like, soaking themselves and then... But I love how DePaula films it really beautifully. It's, like, super beautiful menstruation, too. It's one thing to like a movie a lot, but it's another thing to write the definitive history of this film and oh my god the amount of sources that you have is just incredible and what i list in the back of the book that's only a selected i read a lot more well you also have to remember i am crazy i have been obsessed with it for you know let's say i wrote that book in 2009 so i've been obsessed with that movie for about 20 years at that point i know that when you started getting into this you probably already knew a lot about the film but i am curious what was the most surprising thing you learned while you were doing your research when i was doing the research i read like an interview with the palma from the time around the time he released it right and he started talking about the bridge on the river Kwai and how he viewed the way each of the characters and carrie have their own positive motivations for doing what they do like each of them thinks they're doing the right thing as being kind of like the bridge on the river Kwai, with the bridge being kind of like this metaphor for how all the characters see things. I was like, that's weird. Why is he bringing up that movie for this movie? Remember his movie Redacted? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, in interviews he did for that, he mentioned he kept mentioning Kubrick's movie Barry Lyndon. And I was like, why is he saying that? And then I saw Redacted, and I noticed, I don't know if you remember, but that movie is split into basically three sections. There's the found footage section, and there's this ultra-pretentious French documentary being made about our... Okay, well, those, 
that ultra pretentious documentary uses these like slow zoom ins and zoom outs and some of the actual music from Barry Lyndon. So it's like, okay, he's bringing up Barry Lyndon because it's, he used techniques from Barry Lyndon for that documentary. So then I was like, what if he's hinting that he did that with the bridge on the river of Kwai? So I went back and rewatched the bridge on the river Kwai, and I was like, wow. It's like when the colonel, after he's built the bridge, he discovers like this uh, wire on the bridge that leads back to the plunger with the where they're going to explode it. And he follows the wire all the way back to the, the plunger and then gets the guy that's going to plunge it killed, and then he gets shot and falls over onto the plunger, so he ironically blows up the, the bridge himself. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's Amy Irving discovering the rope and then falling the rope up to the bucket of blood. In the interview I did with the Palma, I asked him if that was him reworking the bridge on the River Kwai, and he, he admitted that it was. And I was like, so that's my favorite favorite discovery among many. I do love how you take the pains to talk about how different interviews will contradict each other or certain quotes will contradict each other. Like, did De Palma think that Carrie was trash, the book, or did he think it was brilliant? And depending on what year it is, it might be a different answer. Right, because when I interviewed him originally, I had not done all of my research yet. I had, however, read all of Stephen King's interviews because I read everything. When you talk about contradicting, he's the one. That really contradicts. That was the most fun to try to work into a psychological explanation for how he relates to Carrie. But with De Palma, I asked him, because Stephen King had said that De Palma in a paper said that, you know, that the book was cliched and kind of crappy. And he was like, I never said that. I've always thought it was great. And then I was like, I know Stephen King, you can't always trust what he says, but that seemed like a big old thing to just make up. And so then I noticed in his interview, he was like, he claimed that the Palm had said it in one of the Washington papers. And I was like, Washington papers. And I was like, what about the Washington Post? <laughs> so I just looked it up. And there indeed, the Palm says everything Stephen King said he said. I was misquoted. Yeah, I don't think he was misquoted. I think he just changed his mind over time. And what's her name does that too. Uh, PJ Souls also gives contradictory interviews. I, I noticed that as well, as far as uh, how much was uh, ad-libbed versus scripted. and I didn't put this in the book, but one of the funniest ones to me is the thing about her baseball cap that she wears in the movie. She says that in one thing that De Palma insisted that she wear the wear the cap at the prom, and she's like, really, at the prom with my prom dress? And then later, in a different interview, claims that she insisted she wear the prom. The, the, the ball cap and the ball guy can't be both. She also, like, I don't know if you noticed, I did quote stuff, like, where she talks about how Sissy Spacek had to spend an entire week covered in, in the blood and stuff. I don't think that's true. From other stuff I read, it sounds like it took about two days. There was also some contradictory stuff of as far as, like, was Sissy Spacek isolated, or was she, like, a little pixie on the set? That was Betty Buckley who said she was a pixie on the set. And Sissy Spacek herself has said that she stayed in character for the entire part. But I'm inclined to believe Buckley, just because, like, how how much can you stay in Carrie? You know what I mean? And Sissy Spacek does seem like she was kind of a, like, flitting around fun girl, so I'm guessing she got, I'm guessing and hoping she didn't stay in part the whole time. I want her to have had fun. And it is interesting with having Jack Fisk doing all of the production design and them being married at the time and, uh, well, still married. I, I can't think of however many movies where they were a couple on them. 
Yeah, well, there's one, the one he directed, Raggedy Man. And didn't he direct Violets Are Blue that has her in it? But I don't know that he did more production design with any movies with her. At least I can't think of them now. What a great production designer, too, to have on your movie. What did you think of the remakes and the sequel? Well, the sequel, The Rage, I hated it for a couple reasons. One, because although I like the girl that plays the sort of Carrie daughter in it, she seemed miscast. She seems too kind of cool and bohemian and arty to be all squashed down like a Carrie character to me. So I didn't fully buy that she was in that scapegoaty position. I hate the way Amy Irving gets killed in it, too. And then the TV version of it, it was weird because they used good actors, but it's so bland. The only thing I thought was interesting about it was that they cast the Amy Irving character with a black girl, which I thought was an interesting idea. She wasn't a very good actor, though. And I like that idea, like she might identify with Carrie for maybe like an underlying race reason. That was interesting. And then that remake that was done in 2012, again, it just seems very bland. I think it's kind of interesting, too, in the book... And in the two other movies that the Betty Buckley character, the gym teacher, is saved in all of them. Only De Palma kills her in spectacularly. I just think that these Carrie characters are miscast because they want them to be like supermodels. Julianne Moore was the mother and Patricia Clarkson was the mother in the TV version. And you're like, what great actresses? And yet they don't distinguish themselves at all. I think maybe Piper Laurie just went so far with the role, there's just no way to do it better. Yeah, and I'm still not sure if I believe her when she says that she thought it was a comedy. Lawrence Cohen claims that she did all the way through it. I know what you mean, but, I mean, on the other hand, it would explain why she goes so perversely far. I think if she thought it were more serious, she might not have done stuff like, I'm going to have an orgasm when I die. I was really fascinated when you were talking in the book about the volleyball game and just how... Her allies are on one side and her enemies are on the other side. And then that there's the large penis and vagina on the floor of the uh, the gym. And I was like, I never saw that before, but I don't think I'll ever be able to unsee that now. Well, the penis and vagina thing, that comes from Bruce Babington. He's a British critic who wrote a critique against the British Film Institute that basically decided that the movie was just an incoherent piece of crap. Yeah, and I think I said in the book that what was interesting to me was that actually both Carrie's enemies and friends are actually all on her team. And that Betty Buckley's even refereeing from her side of the court. So it's like friends and enemies are all kind of the same. That was kind of my reading. Yeah, and I took the uh, volleyball game itself to be a kind of metaphor for how high school politics is like a competitive sport, which sort of develops throughout the film. And this sort of like sort of fits with the way that you have uh Amy Irving and Nancy Allen are like cut against each other, you know, is that it's like first Amy Irving asks William Cat to take Carrie out. Then Nancy Allen gets John Travolta to agree to help hurt her and it goes back and forth between them like they're working in tandem. Yeah, and the way that the Chris character is portrayed, that's another thing that always seems interesting when it comes to the remakes. Is she inherently bad? Is she trying to be good? You know, what what is she like and just how is her relationship with Carrie? I can't even really remember what the Chris Harkinsons were in the remake. But they're not very memorable. Then again Nancy Allen really sticks out. The way I took it is is that when she gets punished by Betty Buckley, that she wants to hurt Betty Buckley, but she perceives Betty Buckley to be too powerful, so she goes after ironically the the most powerful person thinking she's the least. That's the way I take it. Yeah, it's such a great 
female focused film. And yeah, those men are just, or boys are just such pawns for all of the major women characters. I took that to be like that Carrie's telekinesis is a kind of metaphor for female power. And that each of the women use other people to try to affect things by proxy. So Amy Irving and Nancy Allen are using sex as telekinesis. Have you written any other books about movies? I have not written the whole books about movies, but I've written many other critiques. The first thing I wrote, the first criticism I wrote was a like eight or nine thousand piece word piece on A Clockwork Orange. And I've written on uh, The Godfather, several classics. I also did a long piece on Blade Runner 2049, which is one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites of mine. Is that all for Bright Lights? Yeah. I haven't really tried any other places other than with this book. I read that you were writing a book called Marriage Goes to the Movies. It's a novel, and I have already written it. But I have as many agents as I've sent it to and publishers. none None of them have taken it. But it's a novel. It's basically it's a novel about a couple that go to see a movie, and the movie reflects their marriage. And I made it all sort of like a series of like flashbacks that comment against each other, sort of as they watch the movie and get out of the movie, and then and then have like a dark ending, I guess. And I also like worked in film critiques in that too, because like one of the characters is like thinking of cheating on their husband. And goes to see like a kind of one of those university college campus series, which is called Marriage Goes to the Movies. And I did put in like parodies of various crit- critical styles. Like, uh, you know, how I was making, talking about how I didn't like the jargony Freudian style of feminist film criticism. I, like, I did one that was written in this ridiculously obtuse version of that for the movie Petulia. Have you ever seen Petulia? No, I have not. Oh, you should see that one and then have me on about that. Well, we are doing Clockwork Orange next year. I can't wait to read your piece on that. Oh, yeah, you should read that. But that's also a favorite piece of mine. I did. That was where I first learned doing research for films, which I think I probably wrote just a year before I started on the Carrie thing. It's so weird. The Carrie thing is so old now. Well, I can't wait uh, for people to be able to buy it on Kindle and get a new paperback version of it. Yeah, and it's going to be revised. I'm hoping I can get, get this out by then. Because I just have to, like, go over and revise, you know, I'm not rewriting a whole new book. Thank God. That was very tough. It taught me a lot about stick-to-itiveness with writing. One of the problems I often have had with writing in the past was getting to a point where you're like, oh, this is too hard to keep going with this thing. And with Carrie, I was like, well, I just have to keep going anyway. And I, I remember just doing the, se- the descriptions of the prom sequence. It was, like, months of revision. And so... I felt like I was slowly crawling over that gem floor. Well, I love the structure of how you put it. I mean, it feels very natural as far as the way that you approach the film and where you put the interviews at the end and everything, and that it feels like that's kind of the the cherry on the top is the Cohen and the De Palma at the end there. I wanted people to be able to read a a De Palma interview. Yeah, and Lawrence Cohen. Both of them are important. I just wish that the interview with De Palma had been a little bit glitchy because there was stuff he said that I didn't feel like I felt it would be dishonest to paraphrase, even though I re- remembered what he'd said. That's always tough. I had a similar situation before. That's it's not good. No podcast to uh, print. I mean, I can get a little away with a little bit more on a podcast. Well, Mr. Eisenberg, this has been fantastic. It's been great. Yeah, I love talking about that stuff. 
right, we are back, and we were discussing the overwhelming feeling of dread and inevitability in Carrie. That's what's so extraordinary about Carrie, because I, I mentioned before that the the final act of Carrie scared the heck out of me. If I had just seen that final act, it would have been a, a neat piece of, of cinema and pyrotechnics. It's the investment you have in those characters. It's so unique, especially at, at that time for the humanity to come through. And that's a credit certainly to the very sensitive portrait that Sissy Spacek gives, but you feel so much for Carrie that you don't want the movie to go straight to hell, <laughs> but it, it is kind of a, a, an unstoppable freight trade <laughs> that's, that's heading in that direction. And so the horror it's, it's both one of, you know, the, the scares that we're accustomed to in horror movies, but also the horror of, of someone's innocence being completely stripped from them. You know, someone's sense of belonging that, that they will never attain. It works very emotionally with me that uh, Carrie does. Well, that was the thing that struck me revisiting it. That's what I was referring to before I was seeing it again for the first time in so long. I didn't even seem like a horror movie to me. It seemed like a tragedy. The horror seemed very secondary to the emotion of the story and to the tragedy of this girl's life. All the things that made it, quote unquote, horror and the, the, the telekinesis and stuff. It's almost like you could have told the same story without it. I mean, we've now lived in a world where she set her, her high school on fire with her brain, but you've got kids shooting up high schools. You have Columbine, you have, you know, it's this, that really is felt like much more the core of the story and the horror almost felt incidental. It almost felt like, it's just a really tragic story and incredibly moving. And and this time around, I just felt it like I remembered it as a horror movie. And then I watched it and went, yeah, kind of. But it's really a, a heartbreaking gothic drama tragedy and using some horror elements, but to tell a very emotional story. And that's what I think is part of why it has such a, a classic status and, and, and lasted so long, because it's not focused. I mean, yes, the very end is focused on jump, making you jump out of your seats, but the film itself is really mo more focused, I think, on making you care and feel than it is on scaring you. That's part of why the scares do work so well, because you care and you're invested. But it's also why you can go back and watch it again and again, because otherwise it, it's kind of what Jamie was saying. It's just it, it just it's otherwise it's just pyrotechnics. But what and, and it's funny, I started thinking about Brian in general and how much his movies or a lot of his best movies, at least, have a sense of empathy and even sad sweetness crashing into the darkness of the world. You know, everybody always compares him to Hitchcock, but I think even, I mean, Hitchcock did it occasionally, but even a film like Vertigo, which is uh, one of the great films ever made, it's not like you really empathize with Jimmy Stewart. You understand him, but but a lot of Brian's protagonists, I mean, whether it's Blowout, whether it's this, whether, you're, they're very vulnerable, sweet, often very sad human beings. And if it's not the protagonist, then it's a lot of the, a lot of the supporting characters. And it's an interesting thing about him because it's something that's very rarely talked about. You know, everybody talks about his tech, technical virtuosity and his dark side and his cynical side, but that's really balanced by this weird, almost innocent love of humanity mixed in there. And it's what makes, I think his films hold up and makes them so interesting. And that was the big thing that struck me seeing it again after all this time. It was like, wow, this is not a horror movie, at least that in the way I thought of, remember, I remembered it as. Speaking of, of Hitchcock, I, I often equate the feeling, the journey of Carrie with that, with that of Psycho, because I think the characters in Psycho have such a deep sense of pathos to them. I look at the, the Janet Lee character. She comes to a point where everything makes sense. 
this is the person that she needs to be. She's de- she's determined to make it work and set her life right. And right at that moment, it's over. And that's the kind of switch that I feel in the Carrie character at the prom when it's such a dream. She, fi- she finally belongs. She finally feels special. It's just stripped from her in a moment. Uh, and, and it, it kind of evokes the same, uh, I, you know, I think Marion Crane is a very tragic character and, and I've, I, I, I feel very empathetic with her while I'm watching that movie in, in the same way that I do of Carrie White. I think some of the scariest parts of Carrie are we open where we almost end. We open in that gymnasium. We've got volleyball coming from the sky, much like the blood's going to come from the sky later on, much like the stones were going to come from the sky or do at the very end. We go into that shower scene, the beautiful music, the blood red titles, the very sensuous shower that Carrie's getting from that very phallic shower head. But the scariest thing other than Carrie reacting to her period is the mob mentality of those girls. Like we find out later on that Sue Snell is supposed to be a very nice person, but she's one of the first people who turns against Carrie and all of those girls in that locker room start chanting and throwing tampons and just like plug it up, plug it up, plug it up. And I think that's some of the worst stuff in the movie is just to see how people turn on each other. There's that turning, which is an actual thing. And then Carrie's perception of the turning when it happens at the prom. And you do get those assholes like PJ Souls's character who are laughing and pointing, but so much of that stuff going on is all in her mind because she has experienced that so often. She has been the butt of these jokes for so long that that to her is the most natural response is that they all indeed laugh at her. Carrie's really a victim from beginning to end. She was a victim of her whole life of her mother. She's a victim of the kids in school. I mean, in a way she's one of the least evil characters in the story. She may be responsible for death and destruction, but only as reaction to being pushed to where any human being would snap. She just has extra ability to then carry out the anger, you know, and, and turn her anger outwards finally. But she is a purely, I mean, even when she's killing people, you like, my, my heart's breaking for her, not the people she's killing, which is, you know, the, the, the beauty of the story is that it can, you have basically somebody who's <laughs> killing a room full of person people and she's who you feel bad for. You know, and, and that's a really pretty fascinating thing for a story or a film to be able to do and, and challenge sort of your perceptions of what's good and what's evil. And I mean, you know, the, it's like these high school, these pretty high school girls are evil. The religions presented as very evil. Seeing the film again, again, that was the other thing that really struck me is how dark, not only Piper Laurie, of course, and her, but the, uh, the iconography that, 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 you know, the St. Sebastian statue is horrifying. I mean, all the, all the, iconography in that house is the worst of religious iconography. It's the bloody, pained, distorted. I mean, the, whatever you, whatever Jesus is you see, don't, don't look loving and caring. And like, you know, they are the scary, distorted face of, of an angry God. And I, I kind of, I feel like that's really a part of the movie too, is a rejection of a certain kind of Puritanism from every side, you know, and uh, that, that carries a sort of some symbol of, innocence and naturalness and even the that moment of sensuality of this in the shower at the beginning which is so human and like and then that turns it sort of captures something of the impossibility of innocent surviving the attack from both sides 
whether it's the worldliness of those other girls or the insane religious just crushing of her, of her mom and the world that her mom creates. Her mom is such a fascinating character. I mean, you talked about the Gothic and to me, she is just like, she's escaped from some sort of Gothic story. You know, she's like, I don't know if Miss Havisham had a daughter or something. It's she's just, I know in other versions of it, she, and even in King's book, she had a job, she worked at a laundry and all this kind of stuff. But in the, the De Palma I think she's pretty much relegated just to the house. It's almost like she, well, no, she, we see her with uh, Sue Snell's mom, but otherwise she's very much, in that house and that house and her are almost one and the same. So you're talking about all of those bloody pained Jesus images. The, the I, I remember Jack Fist talking about like finding that last supper tapestry and just like he wanted to find the cheapest, gaudiest, worst type of Christian imagery that he possibly could. And yeah, that's what that is. And that's what's going on in her head. I mean, what's inside of that house to me is like a projection of her and all of those archways and all of those kind of things. It's just like, you know, the crazy doesn't end. It just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and she will twist the gospel into whatever she wants it to be so that she, you know, will say things. And Carrie finally, luckily at the beginning of the movie is already starting to rebel a little bit. Like that's not even in the Bible, you know, that's nowhere in there, but no, Margaret says that it is. And Margaret knows this religion. I mean, it's basically her brand of her own religion it gets deeper and deeper and crazier and crazier. And she is just this almost mythic figure. I mean, when, towards the end, when she's hiding in the shadows, I mean, for God's sakes, talk about a jump moment. That moment, even watching it last night again, after all of these times, I forget that she's standing there by that door, by that mannequin. And when you finally realize that she's there, it's just like, wow, what is going on here? This is too wild that she is that still and just waiting for her daughter holding that knife dressed all in that pure angelic white. Oh man. And her look with the red hair, the white gown or her with the black that's going on. She just doesn't even look like she's human sometimes. And God made Eve from the rib of Adam and Eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Said the raven Why was didn't called you tell sin. Me, mama? Said, no. The raven was called sin. Oh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't sin, mama. Say it. I didn't sin, mama. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. The first sin was intercourse, mama. I was so scared. I thought I was dying. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me. And he was weak. No, mama. He was weak. No. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. Say it. No, mama. Say it. He was weak. He was weak. A curse. A curse was a curse of blood. You should have told me, Mama. You should have told me. Oh, Lord. Help the sinning woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. She no. may have been tempted by the Antichrist. She may have committed the sin of lustful thoughts. No, Mama. Oh, don't no. lie to me, Carrietta. Don't you know by now I can see inside you? I can see the sin as surely as God no, can. No, no, you're we'll me. pray. No. We'll pray, no. woman. No. Pray.
It's a remarkable performance, Piper Laurie, in, in that film. You know, I think that it's also great that De Palma's made Carrie because he has such a gift for kind of elevating the, the tone of the material without going into the cartoonish realm. And there's so much about the uh, oppression in the film, whether it's what Carrie experiences at home or in high school. I mean, I remember I was, I was bullied in grade school on, I mean, I sang Barry Manilow songs, every talent show, of course I was bullied, but in the moment it felt elevated that level of ridicule because it was like, does anybody like me? Am I ever going to fit in? I mean, the world was kind of caving in as an adult. I can look back and say, yeah, that was something, you know, but it probably made me stronger. The palm is able to just lift the, lift the material into kind of a Baroque realm without sacrificing the authenticity of, of those characters and their humanity. But he let Piper Laurie just go for it. That's such a vivid, beautiful, expressive performance. Let's go ahead and take a little break here and hear from Margaret White herself, Piper Laurie. Where were you at in your career before you were cast in Carrie? I hadn't worked for 15 years. I had pretty much retired. I was living out in Woodstock, New York for many years. Didn't really expect to work anymore. In fact, my, my husband had asked me one night if I ever thought I would, and I said, I doubt I don't think anybody's going to ask me to, at this. It's been 15 years. I thought, well, I don't, you know, who knows? Maybe. So one day I got a call from an agent who used to represent me years before, and she said that I'm going to send you a, a script, and they'll put you read it. And uh, I said, sure. And she says, this is not an offer. This is just to see what you think about it. And if, you, if you're interested, you'll meet the director. I read it, and I, I didn't think much of it. I talked to my my husband, and I don't get this script. I don't understand it. And he read it, and he said, well, you know, Brian De Palma is kind of, he has a comedic approach to the work he does. And I said, well, I, I perhaps I've misread the whole thing. So I reread it, and I I saw how, you know, it could be funny. And uh, it never changed my mind. <laughs> and so I called my ex-agent, and I said, well, you know, I'd like to come into town. And so I took train, the two-hour trip on the train into the city and um, wore my grandmother's old black velvet coat that she had left me. And it was very beautiful. She made it herself. And I don't know why I wore it, but it was, it, but I think, thinking back, I, I still don't know why I wore it. It just seemed peculiar. So I took the train in. And I went to the office and I met Mr. De Palma, who I'd never heard of. He was very nice, very warm, and seemed to be, did all the talking. He he didn't ask me any questions, and he told me a lot about his career. And I thought it was very sweet. He seems to be selling himself to me. And I thought that was, that was adorable. <laughs> and I remember there was someone who worked in the office at the desk as I left, who had gone to the same high school I'd gone to. I mean, we had a very nice, warm feeling about the whole thing. Took the train back to uh, upstate. When I got home, my, my husband said that I'd gotten a call already from my agent who said they definitely want me to do the movie. And uh, I was kind of dumbfounded. And they asked me to come back to, to fly out to California um, in a few months and to rehearse. 
so I was kind of on this merry-go-round. It was for the first time in my life. I kind of enjoyed it. I used to hate it. I flew out and um, met Sissy Spacek and not not too many other people, and we rehearsed at Brian De Palma's apartment. We just did one or two scenes. Sissy was very shy. She was kind of like like the character that she was going to be playing. And I didn't give away anything myself. But I really didn't know yet what I was going to do. In the script, it described the woman, the mother, as wearing the, her hair in the tight bun at the back of her neck. And I thought, this is all so cliche, and I really didn't want to have to do that. I'm looking for anything not that be the cliche mean mother. And, and so I used to wear my hair, as I always did, just loose and curly. And one afternoon, um, Sissy's husband came to visit Brian. He did the, the sets, and he beautifully, I must say. He asked me how I was going to be wearing my hair in the movie. I said, well, I don't know. He said, Brian, come take a look. And he wanted Brian to see me between his, his arches in his apartment. He said, look how great that is. My hair was kind of wild. He said, I think you should wear your hair like that. So I said, okay. Well, I was delighted because it was easy to do. And then after, a, I think, a week or two, I flew back to New York. I think it was a few months before I went back again to actually shoot. I bought a blouse while I was still in Woodstock in one of those little shops there. It was a very pretty little white satin blouse with a nice neckline. I, it turned out to be a copy, really, of the dress that the designer designed for me to wear at the end of the movie. Um, she liked it, and she just added some skirt to it, and that's what I wore for my demise in the movie. I do remember we um, we were invited to the premiere, and it was at one of those theaters in Westwood, on Wilshire, near Westwood Boulevard. And um, my husband and my friend, my good friend and I, all went to a sushi restaurant around the corner and had a lot of sake, a lot, lot of sake. It was supposed to be a midnight screening, the premiere of, of the movie. When you've never seen yourself on the screen, it's really a horror. It's really a, a very terrible experience. Well, I had seen myself, but it had been 15 years. So I was prepared, I, truly I was prepared, prepared for anything Prepared mainly by the sake, I guess. And we walked around, and there were, it was a midnight screening. A lot of the cast were in the lobby, and we went in. And I really don't remember too much about the movie, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Except, well, I think my husband said, Rosie, this is going to change our lives. <laughs> that when it was over. And it, it did. It was such fun to do. It was, I'd never enjoyed making a movie as much, just the process. And I, la- I laughed so, I had such a good time. You know, all those horrible scenes in between, we went to cut and reload or something. I was just laughing, just <laughs> uncontrollably at, at how silly it all was. I had a great time. <laughs> I admired how, how wonderful Sissy was, and she never broke that her for being in the part, which, but that was okay. I, I don't expect that from other actors, and, but that's what she chose to do. Sometimes I do that, and sometimes I don't. How did you find the character of Margaret White? I thought that the character was pretty cliche to begin with. So I decided that she would just be 
the meanest, most horrible woman. It's almost like a fairy tale. That's really what it was for me, a fairy tale of a mean, mean witch. And I was angry. I used my most horrible tone of voice. I was just extreme in whatever I chose to do, even in the sweet moments. It was great fun. It was a great, great release. It was like, it was play acting like you could do when you were eight years old. I didn't take it all seriously, really. She was just a bad, mean lady. You know, I always thought her vision of Christ and her religion was the, the ultimate pleasure. So I thought, and now that she had come out with some truth about herself, that, that it seemed logical that, that it would, her dive would be orgasmed. I thought that that's what it should be. And I told Brian that my, my feelings about it before we shot it, because I, I didn't want to be interrupted in the, while doing it. You know, it, it's very uh, embarrassing to try something unexpected and have a director criticize you in the middle of it in front of everyone. And so I wanted to warn him that I was doing it a little, a little broadly and maybe not as he quite expected. And he was delighted with it. We shot it several times, and every time I did it bigger and bigger and laughed between takes, I just had such, I hadn't laughed so much in a long time. It was just great fun to do. I'm sorry that he's never asked me to work with him again. I guess there's just nothing left, nothing is done really that was right for me. Can you tell me, what was your experience working on Twin Peaks? It was um, great fun. David Lynch was delightful and quiet, eager to make the actor feel comfortable. Had met David at someone's home a year or two before he did did the series, and I thought he was very nice and very nice man. And so I was delighted when he asked me to come meet with him and his partner when they were doing this. And I, at that point, I didn't realize that they were seriously thinking of doing a series. I thought it was just going to be a one-line bit in the uh, first two-hour segment. And so I signed, not realizing I was signing up my life. And all I had to do in that first thing was, I think I said, you bitch to somebody. And then I found that legally I was was now tied up for a couple of years. But that, too, ended up being perhaps more fun than Boone Carey. When When he asked me after the first season to think of a character I wanted to play, as my character um, disappeared, people would think she had died, and I would sneak back into town in disguise as someone else, probably a man, and make a lot of trouble. And he said, you know, think of who you might want to play, and we'll do that. This was such a gift to give to an actor on the hiatus for me to think of some character, invent some character, and so I decided to be a Japanese businessman. When we went back to work, uh, they had hired people to help me look like one. I never thought I pulled it off well enough, though, and, and my hands were never covered either. So, But it was such fun doing it, and a lot of people believed that I was off the show, including my my sister, who was starting to get asthma attacks again, thinking I'd been fired. I've written a lot about the experience, and if you want to get my book and read about it, you're welcome to steal any of it. Were you approached to come back for the third season of Twin Peaks? 
that would have been fun. But I don't. I honestly don't know how they could have brought me back. What have you been working on lately? I did a movie two years ago. It was called... Was that uh, Snapshots? And I have the lead, and I also won three or four Best Actress Awards at various film festivals. Where did the name Piper Laurie come from? Well, it came from a fellow who, when I was in my mid-teens, he thought I should be in the movies, and he tried to uh, introduce me to a few people and um, suggested I go to an acting class and found a really wonderful acting class for me. And while I was at it, he had changed my name. He really suggested the name. He invented it himself. He wrote it on a little piece of paper and handed it to me. I don't know what it meant. I was too shy to ask him. That was one of the miracles, really, of my life. Ms. Laurie, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. We are back, and we were discussing the operatic performance of Margaret White. The mix of tones that Brian managed to pull off and get from the performances, because it is operatic, it's not naturalistic. There's a dark sense of humor, I think, in Piper Laurie's performance and a lot of it. And yet none of that takes away the feeling of real human emotion or that we've all felt what Carrie feels. Or you know, it, it, it's, not, it's, a, it's a neat trick to pull off. It's really hard. It's hard to be satiric and gothic and real and emotional all at the same time. And I feel like both De Palma in the way he shot and put the film together and his actors and the performances he got from them managed to do that. They managed to kind of have all those levels going on and not getting in each other's way, but in fact, enhancing each other. And boy, that's, that can go so wrong so fast. You know, the, the satire can undermine the, the horror, the, the horror can undermine the emotion. And instead everything here felt this time when I was watching it, like it all builds on each other and, it all makes the whole much more. That's abs- absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's like, I hate to simplify it like this, but to indicate how difficult that is to pull off this very uh, deeply felt coming of age movie with, with the more kind of horrific operatic elements. I mean, imagine John Hughes making a horror film. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a, like a seamless formula, but uh, yeah, that's almost how it feels to me. We're going to hear from Nancy Allen in a bit. And I mean, well, hell, Piper Laurie thought she was in a comedy and was doing a comic role. Um, Nancy Allen thought that she and John Travolta were the comic relief. You know, it's like, okay, I don't know how much you guys really believe that or not, but yeah, you kind of come off of it. I mean, the, the scene of, of Chris, uh, Nancy Allen and John Travolta as Billy, those two in the car, which feels like it's, uh, kind of a, a cut scene from American Graffiti, but those two going back and forth and slapping each other and just all of that stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of hilarious and it sets up their relationship. Oh, shit. Watch it, you stupid shit. Don't call me that, huh? Well, look what you did. <laughs> Shit. I told you not to call me. Look out! Don't punk! <laughs> what, are you scared, Chuck? What, do you want to get us killed? Dumb shit. You fuck. 
I always talk on the show about graphing movies and I'm doing a lot of gesticulation right now, but like it's on one side, you've got Mrs. White on the other side, you've got Mrs. Miss Collins, you've got Sue Snell, you've got Chris uh, over here. And then you've got the, the men that they both uh, manipulate are boys. And then you've got poor Carrie right in the middle. And it's just this weird going back and forth between these women. And I love that it's all very female centric and that there's like certain things that are going on in the movie, like um, a lot of sewing happening. So this whole idea of like uh, who's doing what sewing and women's work and these things. And I talked about how Mrs. White in the book was uh, working at a laundry. So again, like kind of a woman's thing that Mrs. White ends up being murdered with kitchen implements. I love that when Carrie is doing research on telekinesis in the library, when Billy comes up, he's like, what you read? And she's like, oh, book about sewing. You know, it's like, and then it just immediately gets dismissed because who cares about women's work? You know, of course, girls read about sewing, right? But no, she's actually finding out about her own powers, which I really appreciate. But the, the character that I find so fascinating is Sue Snell. And just that she, like Mrs. Collins, they both have the best intentions, but they both seem to do the worst things, especially Sue. It's like, I always question what is her true motivation when it comes to her having Tommy ask Carrie to the prom? What is she getting out of that? And would is she doing the right thing? I mean, frankly, I say no. I mean, I'm kind of the person who thinks that maybe there isn't such a thing as altruism. Maybe the person who jumps on the grenade actually thinks maybe my you know picture will get in the paper. I'm very cynical that way, but it's like, okay, Sue just, I think she thinks she's doing the right thing, but she does absolutely the wrong thing. But I think that's kind of what's interesting about a lot of the characters in Carrie is that a lot of people I mean, certainly, you know, William Katz's character has this strange mix of why am I doing this and yet getting into it and actually seeing ultimately what's special about Carrie in spite of himself. I mean, for for a horror film, which tend to have very formulaic characters, a lot of these are very complicated people. I mean, obviously Carrie herself, but but, you know, even Carrie's mother, as much as she's gothic and huge. There's there are other colors in there and these contradictions and certainly the the gym teacher you know is you know sort of positive and heroic but she's also really kind of awful with Carrie early on a few times and we we see yeah okay you're not she really slaps that sympathetic her. you're kind of like playing a role of sympathetic and then I think again she evolves a bit but that's part of what I also really liked about the film revisiting was that people's motivations aren't mixed and I think Sue's are mixed I think she's trying to expiate guilt. Um, I think she's maybe still even toying with Carrie. And I think she's trying to do something good for somebody she thinks she might be able to help. And, and, I, and I think all of that's understandable, especially from somebody young. I mean, you know, she's a kid. So she's kind of done this stuff. She feels bad about it. She doesn't want to feel bad about it. She also doesn't want to be seen as being like Chris. Clearly there's a split, split happening there where she's sick of Chris. So she's trying to find her own identity. And in it, yeah, she does the thing that blows everything up. And I don't think her motives are bad, but I do think they're complicated. And, and I appreciated that about so many of the characters is that you no, know, very few of them can be boiled down to, oh, this is a good one or a bad one, or this thing they do is good or bad. The various characters you mentioned, Nancy Allen and John Travolta, and I think they're all people that we, we've known at one time or another during our school, <laughs> school years. And I think in terms of Amy Irving's character that she's, uh, she's a well-meaning girl 
who feels compelled to take carry on as a project, you know, whether that's good or bad, or that illustrates the the horror of good intentions by the movie's end. Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily cynical about her. I don't feel like there's any, anything nefarious uh, motivating her. It just felt like a, like a sweet, well-meaning gesture that might not have been the best route to take. <laughs> well, I mean, it is ultimately manipulative. And that's, what's interesting is that everybody in this movie is manipulating everybody else, except Carrie, who's just manipulated by everyone. But really, I mean, she's mani- she manipulates her boyfriend to do this thing. She's by proxy manipulating Carrie by making Carrie think this guy likes her, even though he doesn't. I mean, it's not evil manipulative, but it is it isn't honest. It isn't befriending Carrie herself. It isn't. I mean, there are a lot of choices she could have made that would be much more direct. And instead, it's trying to manipulate other people to get a result. And that often doesn't work well in the world. But she is not approaching that. I mean, she isn't aware of that, I don't think. No, and I, I don't think of her as a bad person. But I do think that the film is full of people who consciously or unconsciously are, you know, she's manipulating William Cat. William Cat's manipulating Carrie. Every, I mean, everybody's doing that, which is, I think, the way human beings function a lot of the time. But I think the film also has something to say about that and about the fact that very rarely are we are any of us honest and we're all kind of, even when, even when we are doing good, we often do it in a way that isn't very honest or upfront or communicative or, you know, that, that Carrie is, again, the most honest character in the film by a long shot about what she's doing and why. I mean, Miss Collins is trying so hard and trying to protect Carrie. She has that little moment with Sue and Tommy where she's just like, what the hell are you doing? And you shouldn't be able to do this. And I love how Sue is like, well, we're not embarrassed and like speaking for cat like so tommy barely gets a word in like he's just kind of there he's like a piece of meat but miss collins if she hadn't punished the girls and with in the way that she punished them like she just basically is fueling the fire of chris's rage against carrie because chris is powerless to do anything against miss collins but she's very capable of doing stuff against Carrie. So it's just like, Miss Collins, you're trying to do the right thing over here, but you're doing the wrong thing over there. You know, there's really no other choice over here, but you're really, you're setting things in motion on this side that will never be able to be balanced over here. You know, it's just like, I know you're trying to do the right thing, but you're doing the wrong thing. And that's very much to me, the Sue Snell story as well. Should Sue have maybe actually tried to be Carrie's friend rather than here Tommy go out with her thing, you know, like what would have been better? What would have saved her? That that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. Well, in the long term, they're certainly actually befriending that person rather than again trying to manipulate. Because there's nowhere good that could really go. I mean, even after the prom, so she'd get her heart broken when William Cat went back to Susan. And there's like there was no end game of that that wouldn't end in a bad place. Whereas to actually you know to put yourself on the line instead instead of a proxy and say, I'm going to be your friend and I'm going to stick by you and I will be your friend in an ongoing way. That would be a truly giving thing to do and a, and a, and a truly honest present thing to do. But that's what makes the film interesting is that I like Sue Snell. I don't dislike her, but, and, and the same thing with, with the Betty Buckley character. I mean, you know, she hits two different kids. I mean, yeah, I want to smack, you know, Chris too, but it's still, she's still a teacher hitting a student I mean, there's a lot of behavior that really isn't cool. And then when Sue tries to say, explain what's going on in the 
the gym, you know, she just manhandles her and throws her out. I mean, you know, if she, if, if that character acted in a little bit more of a rational, open-hearted way, the disaster also would have been averted. So, but what I like is the film doesn't then turn them into villains. I don't think we come away feeling that they're bad people, but that's what's cool. And that's what I think Brian captures at his best is the fact that, yes, some people are just awful, but a lot of people are a mix of things and, and good intentions sometimes go wrong. And, you know, and then even the worst of people that, you know, the, Chris and the Tra- Travolta character are can be very appealing and funny and and aren't anywhere near as evil as what they have happened. I mean, as awful as what they do is, and it's completely awful and unforgivable. They're also two stupid kids acting stupid. You know, they're not meaning to create a trail of death. Uh, it's not forgivable, but it's also like things that people do that when they're thirty years later, they look back, and go, "I was such an asshole." In the moment, we've all, I mean, I look back at my own youth and there were times I bullied kids or whatever because everybody else was. And, you know, we all have things that we're really ashamed of. We look back and go, was that me? I like that the film captures even that. And by not making, you know, uh, Chris and the Travolta character just horrible villains, but making them goofy and, and weird. And they're kids. I mean, that's what comes through is that they're like, you know, they're misguided, fucked up kids that need professional help, but they're kids. Uh, and again, I think that's, where Brian makes it so interesting is that is that it's really hard to put anybody in a simple box. One thing that I'm really glad that De Palma and Cohen changed is the idea of we can maybe infer that Sue and Tommy have been having sex, but really I don't think it's there in the movie. Whereas with Billy and Chris, they definitely have been having sex, at least oral, in which we get to see or hear that thing going on, which is hilarious. Her talking while she's giving Travolta a blowjob, which is fantastic. But I like that they cut out the sex between Sue and Tommy. So their relationship is a little bit more pure and you don't necessarily see all the things that lead up to that decision. I like that the decision comes while he's watching that Western film and turns around and is like, okay, I'll do it. He's being manipulated, but he's not being manipulated in the exact same way that Chris is manipulating Billy. He's not getting a beach. He's not getting sex from, from Sue in the movie. At least, you know, we're not seeing that their relationship seems a lot more on the up and up than what we're having there. And then that also eliminates all kinds of happy horse shit as far as, oh, is Sue pregnant? And that comes back a ton in the sequels, and it's there in the book as well. This whole idea of, uh, I think it's right around the time that Carrie dies, Sue gets her period, and it's like, oh, thank goodness I'm not pregnant. But then it's like, is she or isn't she in some of these sequel slash remake stuff? And it's like, who gives a shit? We don't need any of that stuff. We need them to be on the upper side of the scale when it comes to that that just amazing uh sequence of of scenes where it's cutting between Sue and Tommy and them coming up with this idea or her coming up with this idea and then uh Billy and Chris over on the other side and her giving him a blowjob and saying I hate Carrie White with that amazing laugh line of who the hell's Carrie White <laughs> <laughs> right. As, as she's supposed to be like going down on him. I love it. Amy Irving and William Catt are trying to, try to do something charitable for Carrie. And, uh, so to, so to maintain their sense of virtuosity, we, we, we shouldn't see them having sex. I mean, in, in part, that's kind of a horror movie cliche, right? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, you can never have sex. <laughs> Big no-no! 
Sex equals death, okay? I, I guess it doesn't feel like that to me because I kind of assume they're probably having sex because they're high school kids in that time and that place. To me, what's different is that they're not using the sexuality to manipulate. But really, I would hate to think that it's like, oh, they're good because they're not having sex and the other kids are bad. Because that's one of the things about horror movies that I actually do think is a trope that is awful. And I've really kind of bothered, bothered me as long as I've loved horror movies is the equation of sexuality, particularly female sexuality, with evilness. And one of the things I like about Carrie is that it seems to be actually poking fun of that to a large extent. I mean, it, you know, that's the whole thing with the Piper Laurie character and, all, you know, the, the repressiveness that – that most horror films show towards female characters. Carrie actually is coming into her own sexuality and discovering it. And that's what makes her positive, not negative. And that is one of the things I like about it. So I would like to think at least personally that that's not why we don't see the others having sex. I'd hate to think that that puritanism is really part of the film's point of view, because I think of it as a pretty feminist movie that actually is trying to present real female sexuality as a positive. Uh, and get away from sort of the, the horror cliche of, oh, girls who like sex are bad. Carrie's showing that somebody has these desires happening and we love her and we want her, you know, we want her to find that. We want her to be in love and have sex and do all those things. And, and I feel like so many horror movies are just the opposite. It's like the girl who has sex who dies. It's like, I mean, it's it's become a joke now, but it's really kind of a, an one of the things I think hasn't been great for the world that horror movies tended to reinforce. Nancy Allen's character and Piper Laurie are the two most orgasmic characters in this. I mean, of course, Piper Laurie's death when she is just, I mean, it sounds like she's getting fucked right there. When you hear her breathing and the moans and all that, if you turned off the visuals, you're like, okay, I guess this is like the Piper Laurie sex tape. And then Chris just constantly, like right before she tips the blood, that close up of her mouth, or when Billy is killing the pig. I mean, it looks like she's coming right then when he's murdering this pig. It's like, wow, this is pretty intense. I do have to say, when it comes to Billy, they were very, very smart in the movie version of this to have Billy. Billy's still an outsider. You know, he's not, it, it feels like he's not going to the same high school as everybody else. But it doesn't feel like he's this kind of like David Wooderson character who kind of preys on Chris. And That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> Maybe he's a uh, you know, real street tough kind of guy. It feels like his friends are going to the high school and maybe he is, but I really don't think that he is. Maybe he graduated a year before, but in the book and in some of these other versions, they play him as this real mastermind criminal kind of thing. He goes and he, uh, like they, they, they do all the, uh, pig killing together, but he goes alone to the high school to put up the buckets and put up the pulleys and all these kind of things. There's this whole thing of him and Chris at a, 
at a roadhouse. So kind of tying back to um, Mrs. White's thing, but at this roadhouse and there's a room upstairs where they go and they have sex and he has, he like beats her a couple times. And there's this whole thing of like how he's going to go to California if things go down and whose fingerprints are on the bucket and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm glad you cut all of that shit. We just didn't need that. We needed Travolta to be there to be a pawn of Chris's to try to be into his own, like how he yells at her for like calling him stupid and all this, them going back and forth. Their bickering is such a great thing in this film and that we don't need him to be this kind of criminal mastermind. We don't need another buddy Ripperton, you know? Yeah. We need to stay with Carrie white and catch glimpses of the, of the machinations around her. Uh, I mean, that's, that's where our, our focus should be. And we should, we should get enough of an idea about what's, what's being planned in her absence to feel that kind of oncoming threat, just that sense of dread. And in a way, I think the, dr- the dread is worse because they are goofball. If they were cackling villains, I think it would just weight it so much that it would just feel like, oh, okay, and now it's, it sort of helps undercut the sense of inevitability. I mean, we all know where the story is going. But I think on some visceral emotional level, the fact that they do seem like pathetic and the gang that couldn't shoot straight in a way. And there leaves some some emotional, not logical, but emotional room for maybe they'll get this wrong, too. Um, you know, whereas I think if they just seem like the children from hell, you'd kind of just be looking at your watching. OK, well, how long before they pull off this horrible, evil plan? So I actually think it, it it's one of those funny things where the goofiness of it actually adds to the suspense of it. And adds to the sadness of it, because, again, it's like it's one thing getting more and more out. Each thing is getting more and more out of control. And we don't just hate Chris and we do hate her, but we hate her like she's a pathetic kid. And Travolta seems like a pathetic kid. And they seem like, you know, so it, it, it leaves room to be focused on Carrie. Whereas if, you know, if, if it was Hitler, Hitler and Ava Braun, we'd be busy going, yeah, Carrie's poor Carrie. But like these people really scare me. They're what I'm thinking about now is like the future of the world with these people around. Whereas. These two, you know, will probably go on and have a life and, you know, each marry somebody else and have kids. And that's scary. But it's like you can you can you cannot have to focus on them by making them just screwed up kids. And there are goofy moments in this movie, the goofy stuff that I just absolutely love, like Mrs. White chopping up that carrot. You know, it's just like, okay, how much more phallic can we get with her cutting this carrot? <laughs> and again, with that kind of God's eye view of her doing that, or um when Carrie says, you know, I've been invited to prom, and then all of a sudden there's a thunderclap and the lightning goes onto Piper Laurie's face. I've been invited to the prom. Prom? Yeah, senior prom, you know. There are these little funny moments in here. I mean, you know, some people get really bent out of shape about the fast motion stuff when it comes to the tuxedo. Who could give a shit? I think it's perfect because especially because it's it's happening right before the prom. So it's like, hey, here's this moment of levity. This is probably the most light this movie is going to get is these three guys having their conversation about tuxedos and stuff. And then we're going to move right into the prom. And it's like so much of this movie is just subverting expectations and thinking that you're going to get one thing. And then De Palma just pulls the rug out from under you and like, nope, nope, it's going to be this. Like 
here's this girl in a shower, this beautiful music playing, very sensual, you know, the, all of this stuff happening. And next thing you know, there's blood pouring down her leg. It's like, what is happening? And you get that moment throughout so much of this movie where it's like, what is happening now? Like all of a sudden something changes and you don't think it's going to go the way that it goes to, you know, so much of a good film is being able to manipulate the audience. And especially, here we are, we've seen this movie, all three of us have seen it multiple times, and that we're still manipulated, that it doesn't seem to lose its punch even all of these years later, watching it again for the you know 10th, 12th time, whatever, that we've seen this movie, we're still here with it. Well, if anything, and I think this is true of most great movies, is they gain depth on review. Yes, you don't have the shock effects anymore, you don't have the surprise of knowing whatever the plot is. I mean, not just a horror movie, any kind of movie. There's there's a certain loss once you know the story, but the great films grow when you know the story. Then you're not busy trying to follow what's going to happen. Now you can get really far into the characters and the tone and the feeling and the the photography. And, and that's when I think you know if something's a great movie. If when you see it on the 10th time, you're still having new experiences with it. Whereas I think a, a perfectly fine movie you can enjoy it the first time and you see it again and go, oh, yeah, that's kind of exactly what I remember. And I didn't see anything new and it is what it is. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Nancy Allen, who played Chris Harginson, and William Catt, who played Tommy Ross. I don't think I've ever asked you how you decided to be an actress. Do you mind if I ask you how you decided that? You know, it's interesting. What's decided and what is written, I don't know. I will say that I was on the trajectory to be a dancer. That's what I was very shy as a child. And my mother, you know, wanted to give me something that I could step aside from her and do. And I started pursuing it daily. And I ended up in the High School of Performing Arts, which is the fame school. And I could see that I really was a good dancer, but I wasn't, it wasn't a life's passion for me as it was for many dancers. This was pointed out to me by one of my teachers (laughs) at the end of the year. And let's just say I wasn't invited back. Let's put it that way. So that was my first like, hmm, now what in in my world? And um, so it was when I changed schools, I ended up in a private professional school uptown near Carnegie Hall, which is where I studied dancing. A friend who was in class with me said, oh, you know, my mother is a manager and she manages teenage actresses and you know she would love you and you'd be great in commercials and summer was coming and I thought well do they pay you for that and she said they do they do pay you for that (laughs) so that was the door that the first door that really kind of flew open for me I was 15 but as I look back you know as a child as a little child I watched we had something called million dollar movie in New York and it was on like every day and a few times a day, and I would watch films over and over and over again. So I think that somehow that combined with as what I did at playtime with the kids in my class, not jumping rope, it was like, oh, let's create this thing. You play this and you play that and then, you know, create these little improvisations. So I think that it was there, you know, it was there to begin with the imagination was there, the course, all children are imaginative, but that's sort of the way it went. And uh, once the door opened, I never really looked back. It was commercials and then, you know, other opportunities started coming along. So like I said, I don't know it was as much a decision as a happening. 
Did you end up going to school and studying? I did. And I, the way I did was because I was as a teenager going out on a lot of commercials and a lot of them just had action, you know, pick up this, walk over there, whatever it was. And, but if they had lines, I would say, oh, excuse me, I'm going to the restroom. I'll be right back. And I would leave. <laughs> so this went on for a few months. And then I got nailed by my manager. And she said, you know, I heard that you've been leaving. I said, well, yeah, I'm afraid. To, I was afraid to speak. I was shy. So at that point, I started studying first with an acting coach uh, because I was too shy to go into a class. And from there, you know, after that, it extended. I went to um, the Strasbourg Institute and studied with Martin and at Covens and uh, Sonia Moore. I did. I signed up for Stella Adler, but I'd heard she was really scary. So I didn't go to the class. I was a chicken, really. A lot of it was trial by fire for me, to be honest with you. I feel like I learned a lot from being on the set, from working on the set, from listening to directors, observing other actors. And yeah, I love it. I feel very lucky. You know, I feel like it picked me. How did you go from that into working on The Last Detail? Was that your first film role? Yes, it was. Well, I think I did something. I did something. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. There was something that it was eventually uh, called forced entry. And I was, a you know, just a, a, a hitchhiker and who had one scene and you could see the guy was driving the guy crazy talking too much. And the next thing I think he saw my legs in the bushes somewhere, <laughs> but the last detail was my actual legitimate acting role. I met with Hal Ashby, you know, in those days it's probably the same now when they were casting for movies, they would contractually have to see people in New York as well. And uh, I met him on that trip and I met him and talked, we talked, you know, I don't even know if I read anything. I think we just talked, spent time, he spent time with me. I forgot about it. And a few months later, I got a call from my agent. They said, oh, you know, you're, they want to cast you in this movie and they're going to send you the script. And they had it delivered to me. And I read the script and I went, oh, no, oh, I can't do this. It was ultimately the role that Carol Kane played. I said, she's naked and she's with a man and she's checking out my father. My father's a cop. I can't do this. <laughs> so um, I called my agent and said, no, please thank them, but I can't do it. And then I got a call from Lynn Stallmaster, who was a legendary casting director. Who knew? I knew nothing, you know. And he said, oh, please, you know, this is great. This is Hal Ashby. And I said, I just can't. I do not think I can be naked and talk at the same time. So uh, they eventually came back to me and said, you know, Hal really liked you and he'd love you to do something. And then they offered me the scene, the party scene, which was really great because I got to be with Jack Nicholson, which was really pretty sensational, you know, work with a master like that. Very intimidating, but, you know, interesting. Yeah, because he was already a huge name at that time. Oh, yeah, definitely. He had done you know, five easy pieces and, you know, uh, what else is another, I think carnal knowledge, I think carnal knowledge already, and certainly easy writer. How did you go then into Carrie? Well, that movie, last detail was shot in Toronto. My portion of it was, and I got the bug on the set. I thought it was just such a magical environment. I felt at home there, you know, and I went back, that was in 1972 two or three, I can't remember. I think 73 is more like it. And um, I couldn't get it, just I couldn't get it out of my mind. And 
I woke up one day and I thought, you know, because I was doing commercial, I thought I've sold everything you could possibly sell. If I don't go now, I'm never going to go. And just like that, I picked up, closed up my apartment, packed my dogs, my things, and, you know, moved to California, had the names of like four or five agents that were passed on to me through my commercial agents to call that I came out in, I think it was uh, early September of 1975. And I looked at those agents and I thought, well, there's only one woman here. I'm going to call her first because I like women. Women are user friendly, easier than men. So I called this woman, legendary agent, Joan Scott, and she had my picture and she said, how old are you? And I said, uh, well, I'm 25. She says, she says, you're too old. Go back to New York. She says, you would not be worth the, the time of my investment. Now, if you were a man, I would take you, but you're not. So forget it. You're too old. <laughs> that, of course, fired me up. And, uh, you know, I tried to proceed ahead from there, but really nothing was happening. And it was, I think I joined a, a women's gym and I was coming out of the steam room, had my hair up in a towel. And, and it was, you know, it was already late October going into November. And I thought, you know what? I've been here two months. This is ridiculous. I need to work. I need to go back to New York. I can't afford to stay here. And I hear this little voice, Nancy, is that Nancy Allen? And I said, yes. And it was this woman, Harriet Helberg, who had cast me in commercials in New York. And she said, you know, um, I'm casting a movie. Tomorrow's, you know, the last day of readings. She said, you won't get it. I, you know, I told her my tale of woe, of course, like, oh, I've been here two months and I haven't gotten a job yet. You know? I mean, how silly was that? She said, you know what? At least you'll get a chance to read and you'll meet an up and coming director. And I said, OK, that sounds good. So I had to drive over to Culver City, which is where they were set up for casting and pick up the script. And and then I believe I went to the library and I got the book and I stayed up and I wrote notes. And made, I mean, I was up. I was busy, busy, busy all night long. And the next day I went over to read and I was the literally the last person on the last day of readings. And um, for some reason, you had this notion that directors started in commercials and then they graduated to movies. Well, I guess that's true sometimes, but in my mind, by the time they did that, they were older, younger than older. So when Ryan De Palma came down the stairs, I thought, he's the director? He looks really young. How could he be the director of a movie? I was wondering, did he even direct any commercials? So anyway, so I heard him laugh at something that I did. And I went, oh, that's probably good. And um, by the time I got home, there was a message on my answering machine. Remember those? And uh, it said from Harry, they're going to screen test you. And the director loved you. And I went, oh, my goodness. I was thrilled, you know. So that's how it happened initially. I did screen test. I got to rehearse with Michael Talbot, who was also up for the role of uh, Billy Nolan. And each character was, they, they tested two actors for each role. So I rehearsed with Michael and then I tested with him. And then they said, wait, there's another actor that's going to come in. That was John Travolta. The minute I laid eyes on him, I thought, oh, I could see. I, I thought, well, he's going to get the part. 
So whoever rehearsed with him is going to get the part, not me, you know. But when he sat down and we started rehearsing together, there was amazing chemistry right away between us. It was effortless, really. That went all really well. And Harry called me on Monday night after the screening. Oh, they're going to give you the part. They love you. She's whispering. She'd come out of the screening room. <laughs> the next morning, as I was leaving to have this champagne brunch to celebrate, she calls and she says, well, you know, the director's, the producer's a little nervous. He thinks you, you seem too nice. And they're going to look around a little more. I went, oh, my God. I said, Harriet, I told my mother. It's like, you know, you tell your mother, that's it. That's the law. Then it has to go. <laughs> so it was a long haul. That was November, December end of January before I actually got the part. I'd forgotten. Oh yeah, no, it was torturous. How were you living during this time? Were you doing a side gig? There was no commercial work out here at the time. All the commercial work was New York and Chicago. Someone suggested I sign up with a, a modeling agency and do shows. So I was doing some modeling shows at, you know, in the Broadway Robinson's nay at the time. And, uh, and I started doing some print work, in fact, for Robinson's, in fact, um, and catalog work. In fact, I worked with Christy Brinkley once. We were together was before she was Christy Brinkley in a Robinson ad for the newspaper, which was awful because when we started rehearsal the week before, you never think people are going to see any of this stuff. And people had seen me in the cast in that and they thought, oh, she's just you know, a stupid model. You know what I mean? So nobody was talking to me. You know, so that's how I, that's how I made it, you know, a penny at a time. When you were doing your, um, your reading, that wasn't the Star Wars and Carrie stuff at the same time that had already passed, right? I was not part of that. That was a long process. No, I was the end of the hit parade on this. And Brian was there. They already, you know, sort of separated into their own camps and had their lists. And yeah, I was just literally a straggler. How did you prepare for the role of Chris? Like I said, I wrote a biography about just things that were personal to me. I had to shift into, because, you know, if you look at a character and go, what a bitch, you know, (laughs) how are you going to be? So I had to find what I felt was what I liked about her and what was reasonable. I thought, well, hey, you know, she loves, she loves her school. She loves what she does. She loves being the one that's leading. And now this miserable other girl has now ruined her. She's definitely was going to be prom queen. So, you know, so I kind of started wrapping my brain around that a little bit. And then just, you know, I, I guess I'm lucky in that I never went to a school that had that kind of environment, you know, especially in high school, I was in a more of a creative environment, there's more collaboration and, and like that. So but, you know, imagination is a really good thing and, you know, working with other actors and then just being truthful and, you know, playing, approaching the role as if she's really coming from the right place, not the wrong place. It was, and it was, you know, it's fun to be bad. It's fun. <laughs> you know? It's almost like you and John Travolta were almost comedy duo at times just to see the way that you would go back and forth especially the scene in the car where you're calling each other's names and he's slapping you and all these things it just it feels like you're almost the comic relief in that area well that's what we thought (laughs) 
until we saw the movie. I mean, that's why I thought, oh, we're so funny because the crew was always laughing. So, oh, here they are. We love them. You know, they're not the boring, nice kids. And so we thought we were so funny. And I remember that, not the big screening at MGM, but in going to a theater in New York and hearing people say, oh, slap that girl. Oh, hating. I'm thinking, they hate me. And I remember I was with actually Amy and with Brian and he said, no, no, you did a good job. That they're supposed to hate you. Like, oh no, I don't want them to hate me. <laughs> it's funny that you were hesitant to be naked in the last detail. And here you are in the first five minutes of the movie. Go <laughs> figure. What a difference three years makes. And you know, it's funny because you know, when I was finally cast, uh, Brian had screened, as I told you, I had this long waiting period. He screened Obsessions, which had not been released yet. And, you know, Sissy and John and Amy and I don't know, the, the, the core people in the cast and came to the screening and we watched it and we're all at the elevator leaving. And, and somebody said, well, I guess we all got the part. And I said, well, I didn't. I was so embarrassed, you know. And the following day or two days later, Brian asked me to come back in. And, you know, he had Amy there and we read two scenes and then she was sent home and Harriet Helberg and Brian were there. And he said they left the room. They came back. He says, you know, you have the part. I want you in this movie. I've always wanted you in this movie. And then he took me around and showed me at the storyboard all around the dining room. You could see the whole film. And he started talking about, you know, what was at least, oh, you know, and everybody has to be, they're all the girls have to be, and it's going to be the shower, but it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of smoke. All you're going to see is an arm here, a leg there. So I went, okay, I can do that. And so there we are all terrified, naked, but oh, it's a smoke, an arm here, a leg there. And then the next day in dailies, we're all like, oh my God, (laughs) we're naked, like naked, head to toe. And the funny part is Betty Buckley was like, oh, my God, if I were you girls, I would be furious. She was like stirring it up. But, you know, um, it didn't feel I mean, I suppose to some degree it's gratuitous. But on the other hand, all right, it's a locker room. It's girls, whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't feel bad about it. But there was another scene actually in the car, in the car scene with Billy it was written that he was going to rip her shirt off. And then I remember Brian saying, so I don't think we're going to do that because now that I've seen this part play out a little bit, he says, I have a feeling that she'd like knock him on the head and knock him out. So let's just leave it alone with that. Not to be crude, but I always enjoy when you're going down on him, but you, we can still hear your voice. <laughs> it's so funny. This was a compromise because... Uh, when we shot that, I, I I didn't, I don't think I saw those dailies. I know I didn't. And the first I saw that we were on the looping stage and John and I are there and I'm looking at this thing going, what? <laughs> I said, you can't, you, this is awful. I said, and again, my father cannot see this. He said, well, how about this? How about we compromise? How about we just keep you talking the whole time? And I went, Okay. And then, of course, the big joke is like, oh, she can do that and talk at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) When John Travolta is killing the pig, it just looks like you were having the best time of your life. What were you reacting against? Absolutely nothing. We were freezing cold. The rain was pouring down, which you couldn't tell. 
he wasn't really doing anything. And I'm just, you know, uh, really nothing, just acting, just that's all. I don't remember what was in my mind at the time. You are so much fun to hate in that movie. And you just look like you're having such a good time. (laughs) Uh, We had a great time. We really did. In a way, it's such a driving force because you have Carrie and it's her story, really. If I'm not mean enough, bad enough, whatever enough, you know, because you can have her being tormented by the mother. But I think there's something about that peer group that is... um, it's kind of heartbreaking. It's like you want to escape the house and then you get here and then now you're not accepted anywhere. Really? You know, it was, uh, yeah, it was fun to be the bad girl. What was it like the relationship with the other actresses on, on set? We were all very close. I mean, people would watch each other's scenes and, you know, come to the set. It was a very close, everybody was just so excited to have this, this uh, opportunity uh, I will say that Sissy segregated herself until we got to the prom so that she could really feel that that separation. But uh, mostly we were all very close. Uh, John and I drove to work together because we lived close, very close by, you know, like less than a mile from one another. So we would share rides and, you know, and PJ and I were like thick as thieves and, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, even Betty, Betty, who was living at the Chateau through the whole shooting of the film. So we had a, we had a really good time on that movie. And Edie McClurg was the entertainment. You know, she was such a genius, you know, such a genius performer. And Doug, you know, Doug Cox. And it's just a, a, a tremendous cast. You know, we all do see each other from time to time, you know, either at fan shows or here, there, and around at the anniversary. I had an anniversary screening a few years ago. It was such a, I think, a life-changing experience really for everyone that you don't forget that, you know, you don't forget that. And uh, you get spoiled and you think, oh, you make a movie and they become really, really, really successful. I had read that there was a lot of rehearsals before you guys even, you know, step step foot on the soundstage. Is that true? I don't know that there were a lot of rehearsals as much as we had a week of um, who remembers what all we did. We played theater games. We came together. We were a high school class. We elected a class president. So people had to, from their character's point of view, uh, you know, uh, make their pitch to be elected and improvisations, things like that. Uh, Sissy was not there, of course, uh, not there because she wouldn't have really been involved with us. John was not there because he was shooting Welcome Back, Cotter, who, you know, I didn't even know what was going on with that. But the value of it was less the specific rehearsal of scenes. The value of it was creating that bond, creating that camaraderie. And that's the true value of it. By the time we got to the set, everybody was like really connected not so much me, because that was the period where people were not talking to me, you know, and all I, the only time, and I'm sure I said, the only time I'd ever opened my mouth was when I was in my character. And so I thought, oh, she really is a bitch. <laughs> and then finally they said, oh, you're okay. We like you. You're nice. <laughs> how was it to work with Brian De Palma then? And how did that change or did it change working with him over the years? Because you worked with him several times. And of course, I know that you end up getting married with him. 
Well, yes, we did. All of the above. I loved working with him. I thought he was a wonderful director. Uh, he seemed to like actors and, you know, be interested in, you know, what you had to say. And um, it seemed exciting to me. And you could, and, and I'll say that once we started to see the dailies, you could see, I mean, you don't know how it's going to be assembled, but you could see this was good. This was going to be good. I mean, I enjoyed working with him. He did a lot of takes. Uh, I didn't mind that. I was used to that really from commercials because you'll shoot the same thing, you know, all day long. And whether they have it or not, you're just, they have you, you're going to keep shooting it. So I didn't ever mind that with the exception of the Betty slapping the shit out of me. (laughs) That scene was a little bit much to take. It's kind of funny. I was thinking about it. Uh, John Travolta was at the end of shooting. It was last night, I think. And we were shooting, it was a car flip scene, the end of the movie, the climax where she kills us. And they were setting up for the big stunt, the car flip. And uh, John and Brian and I were having dinner together, you know, dinner, you know, the, you know, everybody's eating. And Brian went back to the set and John said to me, he likes you. And I said, what are you talking about? You don't know what he says. No, I think so. And I said, Oh, please, you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, that was a, little bee in my bonnet. I didn't really think much of it because I didn't have any indication of that, but I guess maybe he's a guy, he's observing another guy, whatever. And um, that we ended in April and then in June or late May, I was in New York and he said, Oh, if anyone's in New York, come to the editing room and you can see your scene assembled. And so I did, I called, it was like, I was going home the next day. Oh, you know, maybe I'll call just say hello. So I did. And he said, Oh, come on over Paul and I, Paul Hirsch, the editor, we're in the editing room. Come on, come on over. We'll show you a couple of your scenes. And I went, okay. We ended up having dinner and that was really nice. And I saw a completely different side of him. This person who was almost humorless <laughs> on the set, he was funny. He was, he was just, was great. He was really fun. So the end of June, I went back to California the next day. The end of June, he, they called from the editing room and they're singing happy birthday. I went, well, that's nice. And he came out to California and visited me. We went out and started dating it, you know, and it just evolved from there at East coast, West coast. And we would visit each other. Well, we didn't do, Oh, well, we did home movies. I'm going to say dress to kill. Yeah. In 78. So after we'd been dating a couple of years, he was developing this um, project, Stephen, you might know this uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Brian were kind of hanging out. And saying, where are all these young filmmakers? Where are all the guerrilla filmmakers like us? Where are they? They, I don't think they know how to do it, these film school kids. So they kind of decided, well, let's let's teach these kids how to shoot a low-budget film. And that became home movies. And that was, of course, Kirk Douglas, who just (laughs) finished doing The Fury. And uh, Garrett Graham, who's hysterical. And Keith Gordon, that's where we met Keith Gordon, who has become an extraordinary director. He's so talented. So we worked together on that. And that seemed very natural. I mean, we were dating, we weren't married yet, but I already worked with him. So it was, you know, no big deal. Working together was never a problem for us. The only time it became a problem was when, for instance, on... Dressed to Kill. I remember Ralph Boda approaching me saying, you know, could you talk to Brian? And because I said, oh, I love that the way it looked. Oh, could you tell him? Because I don't think he likes work. And 
And I'm like, oh, please don't ask me to do that. And and then on a blowout, we were staying in Philadelphia and I was in the hotel room and I, he was going, getting ready to go for work. He says, why aren't you getting ready to go to work? I said, well, I'm not called to work. He says, what do you mean you're not called? You're in the first seat. I said, I said, nobody told me. Oh, he says, oh, I get it. They just think that I'm going to tell you, or we know everything. He said, don't show up. And I'm thinking, how can I not show up? I am a professional woman. I, so, but he said, do not. And, they, and of course, no cell phones in those days. So they had to track me down. And, uh, and the lesson there was, no, we don't look at each other's call sheets. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know, and then of course, some of the critics and people, things that people say, but we always had, I at least speaking for myself, I can't speak for Brian. I had a great time working with him. I enjoyed him. I felt that he gave room to the actor to bring their thoughts, their ideas to it. And you know, he used to say, well, you know, I've written so much and now I think that the actor can maybe tell me more about this character. So, and he rehearsed, you know, we rehearsed on Dress to Kill. We rehearsed on Blowout. Other directors that I worked with did not have rehearsal periods. I'm sure there are people who do, but not ones that I worked with. So I really enjoyed working with him. You talked about how he would kind of be more humorless when he's shooting and then kind of drop that facade afterwards. Was that the case all the time that he would just be that? It wasn't even a facade. He was miserable. He hates shooting movies. He hates it. It is misery for him. <laughs> he likes prepping. He likes planning. And I remember on the first day of blowout and they had, oh my God, it was the parade and the, all of this stuff. There was like hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I went up to him and I said, I said, aren't you so excited? Look at all these people are here to realize what you've written. He says, oh, I hate it. And I went, okay, never mind. <laughs> so that's the truth. He hates shooting movies. So it wasn't a facade at all. <laughs> Carrie was a huge hit. Did that help you get roles after that? Not really. You know, uh, there was stuff. Uh, I mean, in the following year, year and a half, it's almost every, you know, either horror or teen or school or bitch or, you know, the same, same old, same old came to me. The only thing of any interest that arrived for me to re look at and, you know, consider going to meet them was on, was it Three's Company? And I didn't want to, in those days, you really had to decide movies. TV. And I got this script. And in fact, remember I was at Brian's apartment in New York, Amy Irving happened to be there. She was staying, I think it was around the opening of the film or maybe a little after. And they said, Oh, let's all read it together. And we did. And I said, she's so stupid. I don't want to play a stupid kid. I want to play a dumb girl. And Brian can say, but you can be like starring in a series and you can, you know, get your friends for it. And I said, I don't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. So I didn't even go and Read. I look back and I'm thinking that was really silly, but you know, I had my own ideas about things and, uh, and who knows, I think, you know, the right people ended up in that show, uh, at least in the beginning. So, but no, it was a long haul. It was a year and a half before anything presented to me and, and, and three things presented to me all at once. It was animal house. I want to hold your hand and a television and a movie called Ziegfeld to play Marilyn Miller. 
And of course, I wanted to do them all. And I particularly, I wanted to do Animal House because I just loved John Belushi. I loved him. And I went to meet uh, John Landis and we had a great meeting and reading and Tim Matheson was there at the same reading and we had the same agent. And, and then they wanted to cast me right away in Ziegfeld and, and that everything was coming together. The they were trying, they couldn't make the deal on um Animal House, and I'm talking 50 cents. We're talking 50 cents, and the whoever was making it said, Oh, it's too much money, and we're not gonna pay her that, and da da da. So my agent closed the deal on Ziegfeld, and then I want to hold your hand, but there was a timing conflict. So my agent said, just go to work, just go to the rehearsals on Ziegfeld, just go and I'll work it out for I want to hold your hand because I really wanted to make that movie. So he came back and he said, we just can't work it out. He says, but, you know, for you to get out of it, you really, me, you know, lion, a lamb to the lions, he said, or wolves or whatever that one is, you need to go in and talk to so-and-so who's like the head of Columbia, I think at the time, and just tell him that you found a movie that you really want to do and they'll understand. And I went, Okay. And so I went into Mr. Whoever it was, I can't, I said, you know, I really love this, but there's a part that I really want to play and it's a movie and I'm really excited about it. And, you know, I just wanted to say, do you think you could let me out? He says, oh yeah. He said, oh, we'll let you out, but you'll never work at Columbia again. And I just, I was devastated, devastated. So Brian said, you need to call George Leto right away and talk to him. So I did. I met George Leto for lunch, I think it was. And he says, Nancy, they didn't finish the sentence. The sentence goes like this. You will never work at Columbia again until we need you. And that's exactly what happened because I ended up over there. You know, it was a co-produced Columbia and Universal for 1941. So it wasn't long before I was back on that lot. But that was quite a learning experience for me. Have you ever been approached to be part of like the sequel or the remakes of Carrie, any of these other projects? Oh, Carrie, no, not at all. The only, the only thing with Carrie is I was invited to the opening of the movie a few years ago that was made, that remake, that came out the same year as our 40th anniversary, I think it was. Yeah, I didn't go. I mean, I didn't see the point of going. You know, it's their movie, and I didn't feel like I love movies. And I'm, you know, like old, old, I mean, I just love movies. And I think that it's almost sacrilegious to remake a classic film. And I consider Carrie a classic film. I think if you're going to do something, there's some movies that sort of just missed. Go figure those out and remake those. Yeah. Nobody ever approached me about that. What have you been working on lately? You know, I'm executive director at Lee Spark Cancer Support Center. So that's really takes up a great deal of my time, most of my time. And that's what I've been devoting myself to for a long time. You know, it's interesting. I do a lot of interviews like this, like, you know, similar to this. And I decided that I was going to start to put together, dare I say, a book. I don't know what it's going to look like yet. I haven't quite decided, but I'm just recording memories and thoughts and ideas. How in-depth I go, I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to just start sort of laying it out. As far as any other projects, there's really nothing on the horizon. I never say never, but it would take something wonderful for me to, it could be a play, it could be a movie, it could be a television show. But I mean, one of the reasons I backed away is I really didn't like the work 
that I was doing. You know, when you work with really extraordinarily talented directors and do really good movies, it's really hard to do junk. And no, you just got to go to work because you got to pay the bills. And as Jason Rovard said so brilliantly in an interview, I never forgot this. I said, well, you're so good. And why'd you do all this crap? He says, you know, when the critics start paying all of my bills, I'll be much pickier with what I do. do." And I never forgot that. Sometimes my little heart misses it because I do feel for whatever reason, from the first time I walked on the soundstage, I went, oh, wow, this is home. You know, it felt very real, like, like, this is where I belonged. And I love the creative process. I love the crew. I love when that machine, when that machine is working and you can feel it, it's, there's nothing like it. And of course, when it's not working, there's nothing like that either. It's pretty horrible. It's like one more day. How many more days of this do I have to go through? Like I said, I never say never, but you know, we'll see nothing specific right now. Where's the best place for people to keep up with the We Spark Foundation? If they go to WeSpark.org, they can see a beautiful new website and you can see what events are coming up. We just had our annual comedy. I think the next big one is the run walk. And then we have, of course, the ever popular Jason Alexander poker tournament, which we have annually. And that's a lot of fun. And he's just a great, he's just such a great guy and has been very kind and dedicated to the organization. But what people need to know is that everything is free. There, we do not charge for any of our services, and they're open to anybody, anybody whose life is being affected by cancer. So um, I always say, I hope you never need them, but if you do, we're there for you. Nancy, thank you so much for your time. This was great. My pleasure. Good to hear you, talk to you, see you, you know, and uh, good luck to you. Were you always planning on being an actor, being the child of actors? It would seem that way, wouldn't it? You know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of children of celebrities seems to seem to uh, go in that direction. I had a couple a couple other choices I wanted to make. You know, I thought maybe I'd stay in the surfing industry because I was a I was very involved in that when I was in my teen years. Um, always enjoyed music. I kind of tinker with that. You can see in the background here, you know, I, I still, I still goof around with music on a daily basis. It's uh, you know, it's kind of my hobby. I, I don't do it professionally, but I really enjoy it. Instead of crossword puzzles, I, I play music <laughs> on my keyboards or guitar. Um, I thought about that. I, I actually was pretty serious about flying at one point when I had my license uh, during my college years, I thought might, maybe I'd be a pilot. I had a good friend of mine, Bob Long, who was my instructor, was encouraging me to do that. Um, but it turns out I was just a terrible pilot. There was two or three very, very, very close calls. I decided that uh, I would leave the flying to others and I would just enjoy sitting in the passenger seat. And, and along that time, I dabbled in acting because of my parents, obviously, and I did a few things. I worked on Rawhide, and I did a couple of days on the Perry Masons uh, with my mom and uh, Raymond Burr. My mom's Barbara Hale, of course. Most people know that, uh, who was Della Street. So I tinkered with that, but I really not didn't get serious uh, until I, I joined the South Coast Repertory, which was a very uh, 
a very well-respected uh, Lord Theater in Orange County. Uh, they've won several Tonys now in the ensuing years, uh, David Ems and Martin Benson. Um, I don't know if they're still still the uh, still involved, but they certainly were the founders, and I was involved when they were when they were first doing it at the Third Stage Theater. And um, I found my way into acting, started making money with it, and that's uh, like like any young man, I, I followed the, that money vein uh, into a profession. But it really wasn't obviously until I did Carrie that I thought ah, I could make a living at this. It was not only a seminal film for Brian De Palma and the rest of us who were lucky enough to be in that cast, but it was a seminal film for me. It was certainly a turning point in my life. Can you tell me about the audition process for it? I was living in a white ghetto neighborhood with two other fellows, Joe Clark and Ted Levatter, uh, struggling actors like me and the musician. I just went on auditions like like I did for everything else. You know, I was, uh, I had been doing a play down at the Mark Taper Forum at the time. And uh, my agent called and said there was this audition going on. And uh, that happened to be uh, Carrie. No, nobody really knew that it was going to turn out the way it, it did. Uh, we were just all happy to be getting a paycheck every week and, and uh, hanging out with a lot of other young, talented people and uh, working with uh, Brian De Palma, who had who was up and coming at the time, um, he had worked with Bobby De Niro and Tommy Smothers. Uh, greetings, hi mom, get to know your rabbit, and he was touted as being someone that was up and coming and hot. Uh, so when we got that film, we all felt very very lucky to get it. And, and the audition process was uh, it's a kind of a famous story. Uh, George Lucas and Brian De Palma were having uh, holding joint sessions. They were obviously good friends at the time with a, a tribe of directors at that point. Uh, they were seeing every young up-and-coming actor and actress in Hollywood at that point. I can't remember who the casting director was, but through a series of auditions, we went in and auditions not only for uh, Carrie, but also for George Lucas, who was uh, just beginning to uh, think about uh, producing Star Wars. Although I was not uh, lucky enough to get the role of Luke Skywalker, I did get the, the role of Tommy Ross, and I was very lucky and happy to get that. And then we did uh, two weeks of rehearsals in, at Brian's uh, apartment when he was living in Hollywood on Fountain. That was quite an experience. I mean, it was way before there was any video, so he couldn't capture it on video. But we did read the lines and kind of improv and talk about it. And he recorded it on a, a little small little reel-to-reel machine. And then he would take what he liked and, and discard the other stuff. And he would write new scenes that were then he felt appropriate for that particular scene. Once I, I know he worked with Sissy a lot more. Obviously, she was the she was the lead along with Piper, Laurie. But we worked for about two weeks and then uh, went away. And I never saw Brian until we started shooting. And really, once we got to uh, the sound stages and filming, Brian was pretty much all about the camera and all about the production design and the camera and the composition because he had already done the vast majority of his work with the actors. That's what I remember. 
That's what I remember. Oh, oh, and then you know what else I remember? When we were shooting in the classroom, when uh, we had that scene and I'm sitting in the front of the classroom and Sissy was in the back and she writes a poem. We had that scene where it's beautiful. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> Sydney was going crazy. And uh, Brian had the camera and he was on my hair, which was very long at the time, as you remember. He had a split diopter, which I had never seen before. That lens it was fairly new at the time. And he had, the, had it going down the center of my hairline so that I was in focus way up close and yet Sissy, who was seated about 25 or 30 feet behind me, she was also in focus and brought forward. And it was a really neat, I had never seen it before. And I remember Brian say, Billy, Billy, come here, let me show you this. And he had a stand in sit where I was and he showed me the lens and it was very cool. That was very cool. That was uh, about as personal as Brian and I ever got. When it comes to that, she says that your poem is beautiful. Lassick does his thing. You say you suck. Are you saying that to her or to Lassick? I've always been curious. No, no, I'm saying it to the teacher. I'm saying it to Lassick. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm saying it to him. You suck. You know what it was? Uh, Mike, it was the first foreshadowing that Brian had put in the film that said Tommy might be a good guy. It was just a little shadow, a hint uh, that they were saying he might be a pretty good guy. Did you end up reading the book before you started uh, working on the role or, or did you just find the character through the script? I read the book, but I, I really didn't uh, find the character that way. I played it, which is kind of in my bag of tricks, which I did in Greatest American Hero. I did it in the film House uh, with George Wendt. I play what I do, I think I do the best as an actor is I play a real guy in an absurd situation. And that's what I played. And that was it. You know, a guy that's kind of put upon and caught in the middle and he doesn't want to be, he wants to do the right thing. That's what Tommy always wanted to do. He wanted to do the right thing, which is why he was convinced when Sue Snell, Amy, convinced me to take Sissy uh, Carey to the prom. And I was doing it to be a good guy to my girlfriend, you know, little did I know I was going to kind of really start to like Carrie, which, which, as it turns out, uh, the pivotal, the pivotal moment for me was when they were dancing at the prom. Um, and Brian had that great shot, that 360 shot where he, the camera was on a, on a dolly track, uh, going around us in a 360 and we were spinning the other way. And during that shot, if you recall, we started at the end of it, we were laughing hysterically because the two of us were so dizzy. I was literally spinning fast and Sissy's feet was, were up off the ground and we were very, very dizzy. So we were just laughing as the actors, you know, but it worked for the characters as well. And they were starting to fall, uh, go, hey, I like this person. I'm amazed that you guys were able to hit those lines at the right time that your faces were always showing. I know we were pretty amazing. Were we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read that you and Amy Irving had gone out before you guys ended up being in Is That true. We had a dalliance. We, we were friends and had a, a very short, very short lived romance, but mainly we were just, just good friends. She had been recently back from uh, Lambda in, in London where she was studying acting. 
And uh, we had a mutual friend that introduced us. And uh, I think at that point, Amy was playing the field and I was playing the field, but we ended up being very good friends. And as it turns out, we were lucky enough to be in the same film together. Were there any difficulties with the shoot? Did you have any issues just trying to like achieve some of that technical finesse? No, no. You know, technically, um, I've never had a problem technically doing doing stuff like that. I mean, I, I grew up on a set. I was always on a set with my mom and my dad, and I watched actors, and I, I learned by watching, uh, watching really good actors. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work with Sissy, who was way more experienced than I. I mean, I was coming out of the theater, but I hadn't done a lot of film or television at the time. So she was instrumental in, in my education, as was Brian. He was very helpful. Yeah, you talked about how he showed you the split diopter. I'm curious, how else was he to work as, as a director? Or was it mostly that rehearsal period where he was really starting to direct you? Well, it was mostly the rehearsal period. But, he did, you know, one of the things that I loved about Brian, and I, and I love it about other, act, uh, other directors as well, is he would let the take play out what was on the page. And then he would always let the camera just roll for a little bit. And it was in those moments, he would let us do a little bit of improv. And uh, the one example was at the screen door. Uh, when I go to ask a sissy, uh, Carrie to go to the prom and she shuts, I got to go. And she shuts the door. Well, he let me sit there and play on the camera. And then I got to improv the end of that scene. Uh, the same thing in the library when I'm stalking her in the library, he let the camera roll, roll a little bit. And, and I understand he did that with a number of people. That was pretty neat. But he'd say, you know, take your time with this or let's try and um, uh, bridge these two thoughts together. Uh, let's watch your pace. Things, things like that. I, he, I mean, he's a master. He is. Brian is a master at, uh, at directing. Not only at the camera, but also of emotions and everything else that, that goes with good acting. I always feel so bad for you when you get just knocked out by that bucket. Dude, yeah. I was looking forward to a sequel, but there you go. <laughs> Not so lucky there. I mean, the movie was a huge success. Did that really help you out to get your future roles? Oh, my gosh, yeah. My gosh, yeah. I mean, we had no idea what the film was going to do. It wasn't. It wasn't a ginormous budget when it came out. It just it went through the roof. And within a month, I was like on Newsweek and Time magazine. And I was like the only guy, John Travolta and myself were the only guys in that magazine, along with Piper Laurie and Sissy Spacek and then other up and coming uh, young actors, actresses. It really skyrocketed me, you know, at least for a time. How long after that was Greatest American Hero? It was, let me see, we 76, about three and a half years. I did some theater, uh, several projects in the theater. I was uh, scheduled to do a few other films as well as I did First Love with Susan Day. And, and then after, right after that, I went on the heels of that, I went into Big Wednesday with Jan Michael Vincent and Gary Busey. Another just amazing uh, project with John Milius directing. And then it was a little bit after that, I was doing Bonjour La Bonjour, a Michel Tremblay play in New York at the Phoenix Rep with Diana Weist, one of my favorite actresses, such a lovely gal. Her and I were doing Bonjour La Bonjour off-Broadway in New York, and that's when uh, Cannell sent me the script of 
Greatest American Hero, and I read it, and uh, I thought, well, this I, I don't think this will go for very long. My agent said, nah, you'll get a do the pilot, and and it, it'll you'll be back in New York before you know it." <laughs> That's not the way it worked out. I had I had my I was apprehensive about wearing a super suit at the time that sagged in all the wrong places. It wasn't it wasn't a cool. Uh, suit like Robert Downey got to have, or or any of the Marvel and DC characters that we see today, it was a, a it was a whole different whole different scenario. I never understood why Ralph didn't take the time to learn how the suit worked. I don't know. I think that that was the whole premise of the show, uh, and and the way Steve Cannell told me at the time, he said when he was approached to write the show, he said he would do a superhero show, but he wanted to lean toward comedy. He said uh, when they would sit around the writer's table, they would think of something funny. We could make something funny out of ego. Let's do something about an ego. A guy gets a big head, he's swollen with ego. And then let's turn it on its head and make it funny. We'll back a plot, a television plot into that fun. And that's what he did. And that's how they wrote those scripts. How was Robert Culp to work with? Robert and I, you know, initially we didn't get along famously. But in pretty short order, uh, we came around. I knocked on his trailer one day and we arrived at a detente and uh, a working relationship and went on and and uh, and became pretty good friends over the course of three and a half years. That's going to be tough to have that friction with your co-worker like that. Well, you know what? When you look back in particularly at the pilot, you can see it. And, And a very good example of this the tension that was actually really there. Early on, we did the scene in the high school where Maxwell comes to Ralph Hinckley's school where he's teaching. He goes, they meet in the bathroom and Bill Maxwell's saying, okay, Ralph, this is the way it's going to be. Okay. You're going to wear the suit. We're going to go after the bad guys. You're going to, I'm going to call the shots. You're going to do what I say. And Ralph stands up and says, no, let me school you on what, what's going to happen here. And there was a lot of tension in that scene. And it was real tension, right? Uh, By two actors vying for whose show is it going to be? When you look at that scene, that that really foretold that relationship, but it really, really worked. And and, uh, in the long run, that scene helped to cement a, a, a really good professional relationship. Is it true that they were going to change your character name after... John Hinckley Jr. Uh, shot President Reagan. Yeah, yeah, we were. It was an afternoon, and I was on set, and when that came down, and they did change it, but they only changed it for one show, as I recall. It's a long time ago, but I think it was just one show. And then uh, the story goes, as I as I remember, Michael Pere. We were shooting in the classroom that that following week, and Michael Pere uh, stood up in class and called me Mr. H. And the producers loved it. And that was his name from there on after. He was Mr. H. And very, I don't think he was ever called uh, Hinkley again. Maybe, maybe occasionally. But he was known as Mr. H. I loved your performance in Pippin. And having that Broadway show in our living rooms was so great. That was great. A lot of fun. That was a, certainly stands uh, right there at the zenith of my professional career, getting to work with Cheetah Rivera and Ben Vereen and 
Bob Fosse, and there was about half of the original Broadway cast was in that show and had not aged out yet. But uh, John Rubenstein, Rubenstein, he he always resented me that I got to uh, I got to do that role because he he was so wonderful and he uh, he created that role in the original production of Broadway production and he was marvelous. Uh, but I was lucky, you know, I was at that point, it was the first season of Hero and I had a little bit of cachet and gravitas in the industry. And so I was able to go in. I walked into the room. I had auditioned for Mr. Fossey so many times trying to get uh, a replacement, be the replacement for John and not being successful. And finally, finally, I walked in. I think we were at the Sophie Hotel in, in Hollywood, in Beverly Hills. And I walked into the audition by the uh, pianist and I, and I, Mr. Fossey was there and I said, Mr. Fossey, do I, do I really have to audition again? And he said, ah, kid, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that was just so wonderful. How was it learning that choreography? Well, we had a, we had four or five weeks of rehearsal, which was marvelous. And they were all, all very, uh, I mean, these were all trained dancers and performers. They were very patient with me. I would I would say very patient with me. The, the hardest number for me as a as an actor who could move because I wasn't a dancer, but as an actor who could move, the hardest part for me uh, logistically was learning the right track, the dance that uh, the, the leading player and I do. I'm so grateful that Ben Vereen came in two consecutive Sundays on his own time, just he and I, and he taught me that. Uh, he really helped me through that, helped me learn those moves and those dances, um, that dance. That's the way that story goes. You mentioned House earlier, and I had to tell you how much I love those House movies. So fun. Yeah, they were, they were great. And the story with that, uh, if, if truth be told, the story with House is that Steve Miner, just like Brian De Palma before him, when I worked with Carrie, Steve Miner had a, you know, he was coming out to some great movies. People were saying, oh, this guy, this is going to be a breakout movie for this young director. And it was. And that sense of humor that, that was so um, abundant in that movie, that was Steve Miner's sense of humor. I mean, he was definitely left of center, uh, very eccentric and, and wacky. And we just we just had a ball. He was so great. He was so great, as was George Went and, and everybody else, you know, Kay Lenz and everybody else in the in the cast. It was it was a ball. I am just so happy to see that you're still working today. And I'm curious about some of the projects that you've just done recently and what's coming up for you. I don't work as often as I'd like. For some reason, television is not my friend. I don't know why. But recently, you know, I, I took a break for a long time. I was I was uh, line producing for a friend of mine's company and did a lot of television commercials with that company. And I enjoyed that doing, you know, I bounced between line producing and art, art the art department. I really enjoyed uh, doing production design. So I took a break for about seven or eight years. But recently, as life would have it, I'm, I've been working uh, fairly regularly uh, I just did a, a Ryan Phillippe movie, the second that came out, that did very well. I did a Hallmark Christmas movie uh, that came out three days before Christmas last year called Hark, that did very well. I got to play a really goofy veterinarian. I love to play goofy. That's my favorite thing is to play goofy because 
because I kind of am. And uh, when I'm not taking myself very seriously. I have a film that I just did in Arkansas uh, with John Cusack and Emil Hirsch called Pursuit. That's a pretty good film. I played a, a, a local Arkan, Arkansas sheriff. That, that was a lot of fun. So that'll, that'll be out probably after the first of the year. I think that'll be a pretty good one. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a cops and robber kind of a film, but uh, it, it's good. John was very good. And Emil was just, is just, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of both of theirs, both very, very good actors. I love your voice and I've loved your voice forever. Do you do a lot of voiceover work? You know, voiceover work in Hollywood is very clicky. You got to kind of belong to that uh, fraternity. I did a lot of, I did a number of animaniacs and I worked for Warner Brothers a number of times uh, 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 for several years. Famously did Hawkman. I was the voice of Hawkman for a while. But the people that are the casting directors and directors that I work with retired. And uh, as a result, you know, I fell out. Um, I wasn't as lucky as a, a Rob Paulson, you know, who is every voice or a Michael Bell who is everywhere. But um, I'm happy enough. I've had my 15 minutes and I'm pretty happy. Well, Mr. Cat, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. I've, I've really enjoyed it, too. You're just lovely host. I send my best regards to to all of your fan base. What do you think of the use of red in the movie? I mean, the, the use of blood in the movie uh, specifically. You know, the, the blood of uh, related to femininity or womanhood or the ties between mother and daughter or the or the ensuing carnage. Blood is used very expressively in this movie, I think, for very kind of it can be used metaphorically. There, there was a movie a few years ago that I really liked uh, called We Need to Talk About Kevin that I, I think used the color red and, and blood in particular in much the same way. Well, my favorite use of the color red in the film is not a use of the color red, which is the moment when Piper Laurie comes into the Carrie's room before the prom and looks at her in her very light, 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 light pink dress and says, red, I should have known. And Carrie has to go, no, it's pink. She interprets it as red. That's a, that's a great point. That was the greatest use of red because it, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's about how blind people are and how they see what they want to see. And, and actually, you know, I once heard Piper Laurie say that that brian wanted to cut the line because he it, it, it was really that um that carrie's wardrobe that sissy spacex wardrobe had not matched the script it, it wasn't an intentional point and so brian was like we have to cut that line because and it was piper laurie that she claims who said no actually it's better don't know if it's true but i love the story god that's a great point that now you're gonna you just gave me another moment to appreciate it carrie thank yeah. you <laughs> Well, it's, it's nice too, because it ties into that idea of our perceptions. And, you know, Miss Collins thinks that Sue is at the prom to disrupt everything when she's not. Carrie thinks that everybody is laughing at her when they're not. And I love that kaleidoscope kind of uh, von Stroheim greed effect that's going on with all of that. And then the audio. Oh my God. The audio in this movie is fantastic. And the way that they, when the blood falls, that they just cut everything and then you get that bucket noise that when it hits tommy and that he's there saying what the hell but you don't hear the words and you just see all the reactions with nothing 
And then the way that that audio starts to come back up and come up so subjectively. So it's that same thing of like, this isn't what's really happening, but this is what's happening to Carrie. So just like how that dress isn't red, it is to Mrs. White. And here's another subjective moment where it's just like, this is what we're seeing through Carrie's point of view. And to your point about the color red, I love when the world just becomes red. You know, I, I love that the, those lights that, yeah. Oh, with the whole red, white, and blue thing. I'm like, okay, yeah, I got it. Good metaphor. But before it be- comes back to color, when it's just monochromatic of red and black, absolutely love that. It's so striking. The last time I visited, LA a couple of years ago, it was a, it was a movie location, uh, trip. I visited like 60 movie sites and that gymnasium was one of them. And so at, uh, I think it's Hermosa community college. It's near Manhattan beach. As soon as I turned that corner and I saw those double doors and my, my heart just like went into my stomach. I was like, Oh, and I could visualize the doors opening and Carrie white gliding out with a rain of fire behind her. It was, it was an amazing place to, uh, to visit and it still looks exactly the same. I can't remember if that location, I know for sure the slaughterhouse location that was Bill Paxton. So for people listening at home, Bill Paxton, the Bill Paxton, the actor Bill Paxton, who was before he was actor Bill Paxton and while he was doing that, he was also filmmaker Bill Paxton and he was friend of Jack Fisk and Sissy Spacek. Bill Paxton. So I think there's even a realty sign in the movie that says Paxton on it. But yeah, he helped out when it came to a lot of stuff that Fisk would work on. And, you know, if you go back and you watch credits for earlier films, like you see Sissy Spacek and Jack Fisk, they're both in the credits for Phantom of the Paradise. You go back to um, Eraserhead and they're both inside in the credits for that as well. So it's like they were this I don't want to say power couple, but they were definitely a working together couple. And I love how, you know, here they are again. And we have this, you know, she had already done uh, Badlands by this time in prime cut, but her in this role. And I think her casting, her being cast in the role is so crucial to it because she can look strange. She can make herself look really strange. Like when she's in the shower and she's looking at her hands and her eyes are all bugging out when she's at the prom and she's got her eyes as wide as possible, she can make herself look really scary and she could also look incredibly beautiful. So it's amazing that you can have an actress that can do both of those things. So she's not always an ugly duckling. She's not, I can't remember the actress from 10 things I hate about you, where it's just like, here's this absolutely gorgeous girl, but oops, we put glasses on her. So isn't she ugly? Sissy Spacek can make herself look ugly that she came in no makeup on. She put Vaseline in her hair as the story and just was like, look at me. I'm the dowdy girl in school that everybody's going to pick on. I am Carrie White when she came in for that rehearsal or for that audition. That's perfect. And then she can be, you know, you got that Miss Collins speech where she's making Carrie look at herself in a mirror and mirrors play a big part in this movie. Would you look at that? Come on. And that's a pretty girl. Look at her eyes. A little mascara to bring it out. A little. Your lips. Try some lipstick. You have nice, pretty lips and your cheekbones. Look at your hair. It's beautiful hair. You could just put it up a little. Maybe add a little curl. What do you think? 
I love that she can be all of those things, that she can be gorgeous. And then as soon as those red lights come on and those eyes get big and the, all the blood is running down, she can look like a complete monster. Well, the thing that really struck me, it's, it's funny, this time when I saw that when the blood hits her and she's her eyes go wide, rather than looking rageful to me, she looked like an infant. There was something about like, I mean, it was looking at the Star Trek at the end of 2001 to me. I mean, she looked... There was a blankness and almost a continued innocence. It's like her brain that can't even really comprehend what she's in the middle of. So she's there's something either animal or 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 very young childlike about it that I, I found really powerful and odd. And I don't remember it seeming that way last time, but seeing it this time, I was like, man, there's something about her. She looks like a six-month-old baby widening their eyes at everything around them and the weirdness of the world. And it's like even up to the end, there's something still in her that's innocent, even if she's wrecking this habit. She still isn't doing it in some kind of conscious, evil way. And I think part of what's so heartbreaking about it is you could have played that scene with this look of menace and anger and hatred in your eyes. and But she just looks like, like an innocent creature responding to being wounded, uh, not like this, this, this sort of person who's now become truly evil herself. It's not a kind of a leering thing. It's almost when you're transformed by a moment of great trauma and you're, it's like it doesn't register. It just kind of, that, that feeling just kind of takes over. And yet when she returns home, she's so wounded and she wants the comfort of her mother who then, who then, who then tries to sacrifice her. Yeah. When she's saying, hold me, mama, it's like your heart just breaks. And I think part of it is that what allows it is the fact that even in even in her wrathful destruction, there is something still not truly evil about her, which lets us stay with her. And then she goes home and we still want it to be OK. We still want her mom to hug her. We still want somehow to everybody forgive her and say it's not her fault. And, and you know, and and I think there were some really brilliant choices made by her and Brian that allow that to happen in terms of the way a lot of that stuff was played. Because it's so not the obvious. I mean, I, I, watching it this time, the, the once that blood hits her in 99 out of 100 movies, it would have been a very obvious performance about my rage bursts forth. And this was something more subtle and odd and wounded and, as you said, traumatized. And there was still something vulnerable about her, even as she's killing everybody, which is what allows that ending to have emotion, I think. A lesser movie would do exactly that. It would become kind of a vigilante thing. The way she holds her hands is what really gets me. The way that she has her arms down and her hands out. And when she is walking, like it feels very much like she's in a dream when she's walking out of that gym. Even before that shot that you were talking about where the doors open and she walks out against the fire, which, you know, you've got the that image plus the slow motion that makes it feel very dreamlike. But when she's just kind of going away from the stage to those doors, walking against that fire, it almost looks like she's gliding. She's just moving so slowly and patiently and just making her way out. And when we see her a little bit after that, when she's walking down the road, we've got the fire trucks going to the high school and she's walking along just covered in blood still and just has her hands down and out like that. My favorite part of the movie. It's my, well, maybe not my favorite part. My favorite shot of the movie. There's something that, that very quick jerk that she makes to look back at the car and it kind of dera- uh, that moment it got me from the first time I saw it. And I don't know what's responsible for that effect. If he, 
cut frames or something. It's just some little oddity. It's something that sets that moment off that just kind of feels almost otherworldly. I do love the jumps when it comes to the close-up of her eye, how we go from medium, close, 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 cutting those frames out. And we know that that De Palma and Hirsch were very experimental when it came to some of the editing. It kind of reminds me of the death of uh, beef in uh, Fan of the Paradise, you know, where we're going to jigger all these f- uh, frames around to make it look like he's being electrocuted. So I would not be surprised because I know what you're talking about when she, when her whole body moves as the car's coming up. Yeah, there is kind of a little jerkiness there and it's like, okay, what was that? Man, it works and it works well. There's a lot of talk about the split screen and I know that Paul Hirsch has talked about how, you know, there's too much damn split screen. It doesn't, you know, for me, the split screen makes perfect narrative sense because the movie is in a lot of ways it's about cause and effect the split screen is the personification it's 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 emblematic of that theme you see the cause on one side and you see the effect on the other i mean it, for for me it's kind of as simple as that i always like and i know this is for screen direction but i always like when the screen slides over so that she can look up at that last light and so that the screen direction is proper. But I always like that she starts on one side and then the way that it moves over in order to kind of flip flop with that. So the lights being manipulated and just such kind of simple effects, you know, the way that the hose unwinds, the way that the water turns on, but then it just like, it builds and builds and builds. And when Sydney Lassick, poor Sydney Lassick, when when he, he and the principal getting electrocuted and then Lassick going against that beautiful blue field where you've got all those silver stars that are hanging down from the ceiling and he just ignites and the way that he ignites that blue background and it just goes up so wonderfully and creates that background now that Carrie's standing in front of just my god what striking visuals. And I especially love that Lassick, that he uh, had been making fun of her, that whole beautiful, which is just completely over the top. And I, I uh, forgot that he was in that. And um, then he's also in uh, the film Pandemonium, where it's in a scene where he's carrying two dirty pillows with him. And I was just like, that's nice. That's a nice little callback. Don't be tempted, child. Don't get on that bus. Mama. You mustn't go to that evil camp with those those cheerleaders um everyone will see your dirty pillows those aren't dirty pillows mama they're breasts not those those are titties those are dirty pillows those aren't my dirty pillows mama they're his dirty pillows they're not dirty pillows they're breasts butt out the first time i saw carrie i was particularly uh delighted to see lassick because uh, at that time, what and it still is, What Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was my favorite movie. It was the movie that made me fall in love with movies. So I saw him and I said, oh my gosh, there he is. It's great that I get to see him again. I love his voice. And I love how he just gets more and more shrill when he's saying beautiful. And I'm just waiting for him to start asking for his cigarettes. Give him a cigarette, will you, Harding? I don't want his cigarettes. And I don't want his or 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 even yours. Do you understand that? I want my 
my cigarettes, Miss Ratched. I want my cigarettes. I want mine, Miss Ratched. Uh, yeah, the performances. Everybody down the line is great from the smallest little role all the way up to the biggest stuff. Everybody's got just their stuff on lock. You know, it just feels so right all of these performances and then when you have that big head-to-head going on and that's the thing it's not a really a big head-to-head that ends this movie it's it could be bigger the the confrontation between carrie and her mother yes you have her mother being stabbed with all these implements and i especially love the last one how it flips through the air before it hits her it's such a nice little touch but it doesn't become this operatic moment once she pulls her down Carrie seems to almost accept her fate. Like, I'm not sure if she's, it feels like she's bringing the house down on herself. It doesn't feel like God is punishing her. She's just like, that's it. I have no place else to go. I don't have my mom anymore. Everything has turned to shit. I'm just going to pull the whole house down on myself. And I kind of like that because, you know, we're talking about punishment and all this. Like, are the kids that have sex punished? Are they not? I mean, everybody is punished in this movie. Everybody. Yo, Sue Snell will never be the same again. She's going to be fucked up for her entire life. So whether she's dead, you know, like a, a Chris or, or PJ Souls, these characters, no matter what, you do not walk away from this movie unscathed. Yeah, she's buried underneath a pile of rubble with her, you know, with her arms wrapped around her mother. You know, it all has to end. This has to end. As opposed to her mother's arms wrapped around her, which Sue has that love from her mother. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate, too, that it's Amy Irving's actual mom who's playing her mother in this. And I appreciate that. I saw an interview with her where she's like, I think I might have screwed up and called her Amy at one point when she was just so completely hysterical. But I didn't know that Brian was just going to cover it up with that music. So I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Can we talk about the music? It's so perfectly suited to the, the tones of the film, the sumptuous, the lyrical, the horrific. I mean, right down to those uh, Bernard Herman kind of screeches. When, when her powers kick in at the end of it, I mean, it's such a such a beautiful, elegant score, particularly for for a movie that many people expected to be this lower B level product. You know, it, it, so again, that music just elevates and perfectly complements De Palma's visuals. Well, I feel like Dinesh's two greatest scores do the same things for their representative movies, which is that because the other score of his that I, I think is beyond spectacular is is don't look now and that both of those films are films that are titular horror films that are actually about far more about emotion than they are about horror and so for me that's kind of what he brings as a composer is that weird mix of yes he can make it scary and and huge and gothic but then he'll keep sneaking back in those those more romantic themes and vulnerable themes and sweet themes and and it keeps it from ever feeling like a horror score, which, again, we've all just heard a billion times. And even when they're good, they often feel a little monolithic. Uh, or, you know, a lot of times, even a very good composer, it also involves a director. There'll be a love theme, but it's completely separated from the moments of horror or darkness. And with both Don't Look Now and Carrie and both with both scores, they dance together. And in the middle of even awful, horrible moments with her mother and whatever, that sudden that piano will come in. And, you know, it's not separated. It's not like, oh, you know, the nice things are here and the dark things are there. What's horrifying is that they're all mushed together. And, and I think Don't Look Now has that as a film, too, and that score has it. 
you mentioned dancing and I have to talk about the music of the dance. I mean, that uses this diegetic music of the band, which I actually really like those songs, which is surprising. Like they could be as cheesy as possible, but they are great. And my God, do I love it. We talked, um, we, we did an episode on uh, body double a few years ago and the moment of, you know, that vertigo moment of the camera spinning and then, you know, the Craig Watson spinning and, you know, counterclockwise. And then they're doing the same thing in this with the, uh, Tommy and Carrie at the, the dance. And I just love the timing of that. I love how each time we're passing by them, we're getting them saying a line and just that. Again, it's that kind of subjective thing because we start to feel dizzy watching that. And we know that that's exactly how Carrie is feeling at the same time. She must be completely overwhelmed being brought out, not just on a social occasion, but this huge deal, this huge social occasion, such importance, such weight being put on here. And, you know, that's the other thing is, and I don't even think that we necessarily need to say this, but when you're in high school, everything is just such a big fucking deal. And this movie really plays into that so well that it becomes a literal matter of life and death. I'm glad that it doesn't feel like you don't look back at this and go, oh, these stupid kids, this is so not a big deal. You still feel watching this just like, yeah, I, I can understand why the emotions are so high in this movie. Well, that's exactly why what what I said earlier that I thought the, the think I'm so glad that De Palma directed this movie because his particular to- elevated tone is so suited to this kind of troubled coming of age story. Do you think that Arnie Cunningham and Carrie White would be friends? I mean, I'd like to think they would be. I'd like to think they'd they'd fall in love with each other. I don't know. They're both so wounded that would they be too scared off of each other? I mean, you know, I mean, the glib funny answer is, yeah, I mean, they'd be a couple, but the more, the more honest answer is, I wonder if they could stand such a mirror, particularly Arnie, who I think, you know, isn't it sort of never hits that middle ground where he's able to really be honest with who he is. I mean, he goes from, you know, this complete nerd to, to really losing touch with himself and becoming something other. So I think she'd probably be super threatening to him. I think she might be able to see something in him. I think he'd miss it entirely. Because I think he's much blinder. I think he is somebody who has, you know, lost touch with his humanity. And really, Carrie, to me, even to the end, never really does. And that's what makes her so particularly fascinating. She's never not human, even when she's killing people. I really appreciated that there were a few times in King's story where he would bring up Cinderella. Because really, the movie could be seen as a little bit of a retelling of the Cinderella story, which I like, rather than it being the evil stepsisters and evil stepmother. I mean, I guess you could cast Sue and Chris as evil stepsisters, but you definitely have the evil stepmother. And this whole idea, I think he even says that she loses her shoes at the prom. He is definitely putting that stuff in there. And the other thing, I think that he brings up Solomon and the way that Solomon brought down the temple on himself. So again, kind of going back to that end of the the film where she brings down the house on herself. And it's funny because I just read uh, another Stephen King book, a more recent one, I think called The Institute, which has a whole thing about a whole bunch of kids with telekinetic powers and ESP. And he starts that with the quote about Solomon pulling down the temple on himself. Mike is mixing up Solomon with Samson. And Samson took hold of the two pillars Two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. 
And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords, and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. All these years later, 20-whatever, when he wrote this book, I think it was very recent because I, you know, it's at an airport bookstore, that he's still dealing with these themes just in different ways. And with that one, that was like 600 pages, whereas Carrie, you know, I I listened to the whole book in like five hours. I'm like, this is fantastic. (laughs) I love how quick it is. And even then you could say, well, it's kind of padded out with all this you know, white commission stuff, but it all works. And really it's such a simple story that it's, it flows so well. And it does have that universality to it that we we're just talking about when it comes to that overdramatic way that we saw things in the world when we were younger and that we can still cast ourselves back into that moment and be like, yeah, shit was really important back then. And I'm not sure why, but it sure did feel that way. And I thought just the one more thing that, I'm glad that they cut out in the um, the adaptation of this is that they eliminated most of the adult characters, the adults that didn't really have something to do with the story. So the whole idea of Chris's dad, that he's a lawyer and he comes in and there's this whole thing between Chris's dad and the principal. I mean, they basically, they give that principal, what, one scene where he doesn't die? Get this guy out of here. Get the father character out of there and just deal with these kids. And the only real adults that you see, like, yes, Mrs. Snell a bit, but then it's Miss Collins, a little bit of Sydney Lassick, and then it's Mrs. White. And that's it, man. We don't really need all this other stuff in there. They're just so on point when it came to the storytelling by keeping it in that world that adolescent world where everything is so heightened it makes it feel more true because it when you're an adolescent everything is heightened when there's a bunch of adults it feels more like the the reality would start dragging you down yeah i'm still stuck on the whole idea of a carrie christine spinoff it's five minutes ago but i'm still pondering that I love Christine, but when I watched it, I was just like, wow, Buddy Reperton and John Travolta. I can't can't remember the gentleman's name that played Buddy, but like those two, they would be definitely chums. I could see them going and robbing liquor stores all up and down the West Coast. Well, they also sort of look like each other. That was something I remember even when we were doing Christine. I remember thinking, wow, they kind of went for the Travolta thing here in terms of just the hair and the, you know, it's. (laughs) <laughs> and I never asked Carpenter about it. I never asked if there was an intentional callback because he wasn't riffing on, on De Palma or whatever generally or other filmmakers even that consciously generally. I think Brian is much more somebody who really does, you know, he names the school the Bates School. I mean, he's much more, I mean, Brian's much more a, a, a movie nerd in that sense. I mean, John loves movies, but he's not playing with movie history nearly so much. But I did feel like with that character, it's like, wow, oh my God, it's sort of the same guy in this story. Uh, and they went visually kind of very similar. So yeah, I have no idea if that was intentional, but yeah, you really see it. Meet Carrie White and Arnie Cunningham. They're the yeah. two biggest outcasts of their high school. One's got a crazy car. When they join up, sparks fly. Literally. <laughs> Save the date for the prom. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take one final break and play an interview with Joe Madry, the author of Adapting Stephen King, Volume 1. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. 
Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS... What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast all about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards. In 2016, is a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. Hello, this is Mark Bigley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Guests have included friend of the show and host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mike White, genre film journalists Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. That's me. (laughs) Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out, wakeupheavy.com, soundcloud.com slash wakeupheavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, anything can happen when you wake up heavy. Joseph Madry, we've talked many times, and this time I want to talk to you about the first in a 
seems like it's going to be a series talking about Stephen King adaptations. I hope it's going to be a series. We'll see how far I get. Sky's the limit. There's a few hundred films I could write about, and uh, I'm only three deep at this point. Well, which are the ones you're covering in this one? It's uh, Carrie, Salem's Lot, and is it Cujo? The Shining. The Shining. The Shining. Yeah, the first three. Uh, the first three novels that he put out, uh, at least under under the name of Stephen King, because I think he had uh, I think he had a the first Bachman, but maybe the, the first Bachman book was uh, I think that was before The Shining. I think Rage came out. Uh, before the shine, but I didn't. I didn't go there. This is just uh, those three, and it's in the book. I'm looking at uh, all of the film and television adaptations of those stories. How did you decide to write this project? I've been thinking for years about trying to do a documentary film on Stephen King adaptations, and I guess I backed into the book idea because of a book I'd written a few years ago on Brainstorm, which we talked about. The great thing about writing the book on Brainstorm was that I got access to the screenwriters and to all of these different versions of the screenplay, you know, over over a dozen different drafts for that film. And I loved doing that primary research. I loved talking to the writers and kind of getting inside their heads and looking at the the hows and whys of, of all the changes in the stories, how each writer would kind of come along and make it their own, and then how you know, a producer would, uh, would, would weigh in with an idea and they would, they would kind of tweak it. And it would almost, you know, it was interesting the way the story almost kept kind of changing genres in these subtle ways. And so I got really obsessed with studying the development process and kind of the creative process that the screenwriters specifically went through. And so I decided, well, there's kind of a unique way to tackle Stephen King films because everybody always interviews and quotes the directors and everybody always compares the source story to the finished film. And there's a lot that can happen in there, as you know, and I wanted to kind of do that deep dive. So did you just start with Carrie and then see what there was to have, or did you already say, okay, this is going to be what I want to do and just start plotting out all of your research? Because I know you're very meticulous when it comes to these. Well, there were two things I was doing really. I was, I was gathering scripts just to see what I could find, you know, what, what was out there that I could study. And then also, um, you know, just going to, to books and magazines that had been uh, published and finding all the interviews that I could, that gave behind the scenes information on the films and, and specifically looking for interviews with the, the writer, the director, and the, the producers of these films, just trying to figure out what had already been put out into the world, what people had said, and then see if I could find scripts that 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 hadn't been analyzed um, at, at least you know at great length, and um, and and kind of see if there was anything new to say about those things. And and I was surprised actually <laughs> that for three pretty big titles, when I mean, when you're looking at Carrie and Salem's on the Shining, plenty has been written and said about those films. And so to try to come up with something that people haven't explored um, or questions that haven't been asked, you know, I, th- I thought it was going to be kind of daunting, but um, you know, I suppose my ob- obsessive nature, there's always something I want to know that, that hasn't been uh, covered yet. So I just, I just dug in. I think yours was the first time where I really got to see all of the different versions of Carrie, especially when it came to the two remakes and the sequel to see those all lined up and have those comparisons as well as the original film. Yeah. People don't usually talk about, about the remake, or at least they don't go into detail about why 
they're told the way they're told. I mean, that's the thing I really keep coming back to as I was writing the book and as I talk about the book now that it's out in the world is, is this question of why. Why did the different writers do it the way that they did? I mean, it'd be easy enough to just do compare and contrast and say, here's what's in the original story, here's what's in the original movie, and here's how it changes. But what I really wanted to get to was why the change. And of course, I had my own ideas. And then I'm, as I'm interviewing the writers, I'm just sort of testing my theories and kind of trying to get in, in their head a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about that TV version of it, which was supposed to be a series. I had read that somewhere. I can't remember where. Maybe it was, was in an interview with, with Brian Fuller where he said that that was the original deal, that that was the reason it got made as a TV movie was they were basically trying to do a backdoor pilot. You know, it was going to serve two purposes and they were going to have this, uh, you know, this movie that they could air, but it was also going to launch a series. And some of the decisions that he made about how to adapt the story, how to tweak it and make it different, you know, his goal wasn't just to make it different from the version that was already out there. It was actually, you know, how do we set up a series? I mean, you know, in, in obviously in the, the novel and in the original film, Carrie's dead at the end. You know, your title character is dead. And so I think that was that was probably the big note, you know, that he that he that he was stuck with was just you've got to keep her alive. And then his way of doing that was to set up a redemption story, at least asking the question of whether whether Carrie can be redeemed after doing what she's done and and whether she's responsible, how responsible she is. All these questions kind of come into it. But he also, you know, set up uh, the Sue Snell character. And, uh, and I think Chris, Chris Hargison, you know, he kind of changed the arcs for all three of those, those female characters, uh, so that they would have somewhere to go actually from a storytelling perspective, I'm, I'm really impressed with what he did. And I was kind of surprised because I didn't, I remember when I first saw the TV movie, really liking the, the, you know, the two main performances, Patricia Clarkson and, and, uh, and Angela Bettis, I thought were great. But I didn't, I wasn't crazy about, you know, about the TV movie. And, and for some of the reasons, actually, that, that Brian Fuller, you know, has his own kind of hesitations. Uh, one of them is just TV lighting. I hate TV lighting. I hate, I hate watching a horror movie on TV. It drives me nuts. You know, things like that. And just, you know, the digital effects, is, is some of the CGI stuff I thought was terrible and pulls you out of the movie. And I think Brian Fuller felt like the TV movie was too long for his taste and he wishes he could edit it down and really kind of hew closer to the streamlined story that's there in the, in the 1976 film version. And I got really fascinated by some of the stuff that he wrote that was completely new material, completely new framing story. He had two, he added two different framing stories. One of them was shot, but didn't end up in the, in the TV movie at all. And the other one is, is in there, but kind of trimmed down. And I thought that that was interesting because that was the thing that really made it stand out to me were all the things that were, were different, but that's the big challenge with doing a doing a remake is you have to uh, surprise people who know the material so well. That can be kind of a curse. Uh, it for it forces you to do some things that maybe otherwise you wouldn't do, like leave Carrie alive at the end. Well, I do really appreciate too how you mentioned Sue and Chris, and talking about how their relationships were different in that as well as the other remake where that power dynamic between those three female characters, you know, not even talking about Mrs. White, but just the high school relationships 
just that they're treated so differently from version to version, I thought was fascinating. I was so glad that you were able to kind of track that and talk about how they are different from one to another. With Carrie, especially some of the the characters in the in the novel, because it's a pretty thin novel and it's an early novel for Stephen King. I think it was his first horror novel. He'd written other novels, but he hadn't written. He'd only written horror short stories. And and in a short story, you don't have to develop the character as much. And so I think there are some characters that that really get kind of short shrift in the novel. And then you know the screenwriters come along and they have to kind of figure out why are these people doing what they're doing. Uh, or do I believe, you know, they're the reason that Stephen King gives them for doing the, the character that I think is just a complete cipher is Tommy Ross, because, you know, here's a guy like Stephen King sets him up just as as like a fairy tale character. You know, he's just the perfect guy. He's the nicest guy. He's the most popular guy. He's a jock. He's super smart. He writes poetry. <laughs> you know, it's like he's he's kind of got all of that. And it's not really clear why he agrees to take Carrie to the prom. You know, you, you can tell that he's not trying to, you know, he's just like such a good guy that this is the right thing to do, but also such a naive guy <laughs> that he thinks, you know, this is going to, going to work out and be a good thing for Carrie. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that's something where, you know, in the De Palma film, William Cat I think, makes that character work just because he's got that all shucks grin and he seems... You know, he seems kind of high all the time. I mean, just kind of like devil may care. Like, yeah, this seems like fun. Let's let's give it a shot. You know, why not? And somehow he's able to pull it off with just that persona. <laughs> you know, I think it was a challenge when you get to the remakes. You know, I think that was something that the writers struggled with. Like, you know, why is this guy doing this? And and to you know, one one way you can look at it is to say, well, he's. He's kind of neat, naive. He hasn't thought it through, or he really just wants to make his girlfriend happy and do what she's asking him to do and help her out, all this. But you have to be able to balance those answers with making a likable character, you know, somebody who doesn't seem like he's just kind of a, you know, a one note goofball. <laughs> you know, this was the fun thing, really, I think, about studying the different drafts and talking to the writers was just how did you justify this to yourself? What was your thought process, you know, behind this, this character, behind this scene? You know, I love I love doing that. And it's not something that uh, I necessarily, when I'm watching films, I'm sort of picking all those details out. I'm just kind of, uh, you know, on a subconscious level going, I don't buy this character. I don't maybe don't like this character, but it really makes me watch the films in a different way when I've, you know, asked these questions and, and had these conversations you know, usually I like them better. I found that, that generally I like I like the films better after studying them. Yeah, I do like that you can really see different shading that you didn't necessarily see before and really think about like, oh, th- that choice. Okay, now I, I understand why they did what they did there, or I still wonder why they did what they did there, but at least you have a better understanding of, of where people are coming from. I think I wonder more with the 2013 theatrical remake because i think the, the first of all there were a lot of writers uh in, in the room on that one at different times you can talk something to death and you can have a whole bunch of different reasons why something works and once you've had you know i mean this is this is the the curse of development you spend a couple of years hashing something out from every possible angle and you know you can have all that stuff in your head but you have to make some decisions and and the decisions have to be 
you know, connected to each other. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going with this version of the character in this scene, but then three scenes down the road, I'm going to go with this other idea I had of the character and their justification because uh, that's a cool scene and I don't want to lose that. And I, I feel like the, the, the 2013 version suffers a little bit from some of that. I mean, the, you know, reading, reading the interviews um, with Kimberly Pierce, uh, it, it seemed like they, she specifically kind of got, got, this idea that Carrie was a revenge story on one hand, she's, she's taking conscious revenge for the things that have happened to her. But on the other hand, it's a superhero origin story. And that's two different stories. Uh, and it's hard to make them mesh. You know, are we, is this story about a hero or a villain? It can be done. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that those story details were, were quite worked out, or at least aren't you know, we're, we're not worked out to my satisfaction as a viewer. I'll, I'll blame myself here. Just even the way that you covered it, it was like, here's the screenplay. And then here's these interviews with Kimberly Pierce. Like there was a lot of, and never the twain shall meet. The final film is attributed to two uh, screenwriters and that's Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and uh, Lawrence D. Cohen. And Roberto wrote the, the the first draft and he's, you know, he's an accomplished writer. He's a Stephen King enthusiast. I think when he wrote this, he had just come off of doing the Marvel comics uh, adaptation of the stand. He has some chops. He's a playwright. He's, he, he's written actually some fantastic plays. And, and he wrote a script that I thought it's fairly faithful to Stephen King. And it was clear that he really wanted to be faithful to Stephen King, but he, but he also added in some stuff that I think was very, was very personal uh, for him. So he, so he did kind of put his, his, his stamp on it in little ways. You know, I guess when, when Kimberly Pierce got attached as director, she brought in at least two different writers who uh, revised the script. And then she did a revision after each one so it got changed quite a bit. And one of the things that you notice in the final shooting script is that there are these scenes which were original to Larry Cohen's adaptation, but were not in the Stephen King novel. And, and I think that is actually why Larry Cohen got, got screenwriting credit was because they, they, they went back to certain things that just felt like scenes that an adaptation of Carrie should have or that were so indelible, you know, after years of, of watching the De Palma film, it's that they just couldn't imagine doing it without certain scenes. And so those scenes kind of got imported and Larry, Larry Cohn got screenwriting credit, even, even though, or, you know, our shared screenwriting credit, even though he told me that um, he had nothing to do with, you know, writing the script for that film. I, I don't get the sense that, you know, the original screenwriter of the, you know, the remake, Roberto Aguirre Casa got to come back and, you know, be involved at all after that that first draft. And I don't think he's talked about it uh, very much. I tried to get in touch with him and do an interview and I never heard back. So I, I don't know if he, maybe he doesn't particularly feel like the film that got made is his film. I'm not sure. We talked about Lawrence Cohen and I am curious. There's that story about how when Paul Monash got the rights that he sent the he gave the assignment to someone. Was it a woman in Texas? Yeah, a woman in Texas. That's all I know. <laughs> I, wish, I was wondering I if wish there I was knew. a name for this woman, this mysterious no. woman. Huh. No, and he and he doesn't remember either. And I would love, you know, it's. I, I think the Centipede Press book had a quote, and it might have come from from Cohen, where he actually described kind of the first scene in in that elusive first draft. 
And, um, and that's all I know about it is kind of that one, you know, it was a very simple thing just that, you know, I think it was starting it with a church service, um, you know, at Margaret White's church and, and, um, you know, and setting up all the, all the characters at the church. And so, you know, right off the bat kind of deviating from Stephen King's story, which is, you know, that she's sort of a religious nut who's, you know, too nutty for a congregation. (laughs) Uh, the congregation wouldn't have her. She got booted out. I'm not sure you can still be too nutty for a congregation these days, but back in the day, who knows? I imagine that finding that script is a little bit of a holy grail for you. I'm curious, what are some of the things that eluded you while you were trying to do your research on these first three films? I would have loved to have found some of the uh, mysterious Salem's Lot scripts. I'm trying to remember who I've, I did find the Sterling Siliphant, his, uh, his first two drafts. And all I'd known about them previously was, was that Stephen King said they were awful. I, was, I, I knew they existed. He'd read them. He said they were awful. And that was all, that was all I knew and, and uh, ended up finding those in special collections at, at UCLA. But then there, there are a bunch of other drafts in there. I mean, the story is that, you know, Warner Brothers put all this money into developing Salem's Lot as a feature film, and they just could not get, you know, the right script. And part of that, it seems, is that they weren't really going to horror writers. You know, Sterling Siliphant, in spite of, you know, having some some other horror credits, for better or worse, you know, he he was kind of trying to to tell Salem's Lot without vampires, you know, without blood-sucking. I mean, without, you know, just... Wanted, wanted to do it almost as more of kind of a melodrama. I think he wanted to do Dark Shadows, maybe. Then there were a couple of other people. I'm trying to remember who... Somebody said that Mike Nichols wrote a draft, which doesn't seem right because he wasn't generally known as a writer. He may have been attached as a... or approached as a, a director at one point. Who else? I can't remember who else. There, there were a few drafts in there that I, that I tried to chase down um, by other writers. And, you know, I just never found them or never even found evidence that they exist. Larry Cohen was the other, so the other Larry Cohen. Uh, this is tricky. I keep, I keep saying Larry Cohen because, um, you know, that's how Lawrence D. Cohen refers to himself. But of course, he's on screen. He's he's Lawrence D. Cohen because there was already a Larry Cohen who had, you know, who had made It's Alive and you know he's do, doing horror movies. So it's you got to distinguish yourself. But Larry Cohen uh, did write a draft for. Warner Brothers, I think at the point where they decided we're, we're, you know, we need to find some horror guys to do this because the other guys aren't cracking it. And he wrote a draft and I, I happened to see him at a signing a couple of weeks, just a couple of weeks before he died. I said, you know, do you still have that draft floating around anywhere? He said, no, which may or may not be true, but you know, it's, I, I, I've not seen it. And the only thing I know about that was that supposedly the idea of basing, um, you know, the look of Barlow on, on Nosferatu was his idea that was something that came in at his draft so so there were you know there's a few drafts in there that i would have loved to have seen but paul monash came in and and uh you know once it once it went over to to uh television because i think the feature film side kind of said this is this is a write-off we've put too much money in this and already and it's just you know forget it it's not happening so they made it cheaper you know for for television on the television side and and, um, you know, I thought Paul Monash did, did a really good job of cracking the story. And, of course, he had some experience because, you know, he'd done Carrie. Uh, he, and he is co-credited on that, on that very first draft of the Carrie script with, with Lawrence D. Cohen, although I, I, w- I would imagine that, that Cohen probably did most of the writing and, and uh, may have gotten a fair amount of verbal notes. Well, it seems like when it comes to Carrie that 
there were the two great screenplays, some differences between those, but then it feels like a lot of stuff just got worked out when De Palma came in and especially through so many of those rehearsals that they were doing. The visual storytelling really got worked out. And one of the interesting things, uh, probably the most notable thing really is the, the difference between the, this, the screenplay, especially the first draft and the finished film is, you know, this is, this is based on a novel that has all of those epistolary interludes and, you know, framing stories. And then, uh, you know, little snippets of articles, you know, about telekinesis and, you know, news articles about the, the bloody prom and all this kind of stuff. It's really fragmented together. The timeline is, is all over the place. One of the first things that that Cohen did was to say, you know, we, we've got to lose a lot of that and really kind of streamline the story and tell a linear story that's very much in the moment. His first draft still had a few bits and pieces. He still had the White Commission, so he still had Sue Snell giving her testimony at the at the White Commission, and then he actually had some kind of dream sequences. I remember one where a scene begins with Carrie walking into the cafeteria holding Tommy Ross's hand. And it turns out to be a dream sequence, but but it's you know you, that that's a late reveal. You don't. It's not set up as a dream sequence. So he had some stuff like that, and that's the kind of stuff I think that that Brian De Palma just completely stripped out. And he said we're going to be in the moment. You know, every every moment is going to be in the moment. We're not we're not jumping around. We're just going to tell the story from beginning to end, a completely streamlined story. And then it allowed him to focus on the visuals of the moment, you know, the storytelling is there, the characters are there, the structure is there. That's, that's what the screenwriter provided. And then he's able to just embellish how to visually tell every single scene. And he, and, you know, had a lot of time in pre-production of this one. So, I mean, every little thing he's going, how can I make this different? And that is really what makes the film, but it's a luxury for, for a director to come in and not have to mess with the story (laughs) to go. The characters are there. Um, you know, if I cast these parts well, you know, the, the story is there. He certainly, you know, benefited from from what uh, Cohen had done. I was always so curious about Salem's Lot and why it ended up on television. I was so glad for your book actually answering that question because it just felt so strange that Carrie made such a splash and made so much money. And then the second adaptation ends up being a TV movie or TV miniseries with the two parts and i'm like how the hell did that happen because it feels like it would be money in the bank to make a salem's lot movie the book salem's lot was optioned before the carry movie came out uh in fact sterling silifont i believe had written his first draft if not his second draft before carry was released and i think probably the release of carry is what sort of put the Salem's Lot project in the hot seat. Oh, wait, we've got something here. We need to really deliver. And, and I think, you know, the Sterling Silifont version might have ended up just getting made because nobody was paying a lot of attention to it. And then Carrie happened, and you're going, the Stephen King guy is somebody now, uh, or could be somebody. I mean, I think, you know, Carrie was attributed, you know, more to, to you know, Brian De Palma as a success and to... Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie and, you know, a lot of other people other than Stephen King. But obviously you're going to, if you put out Salem's Lot, you're going to market it as from the mind that gave you care. You know? So all of a sudden there was a lot more attention and the, and the Sterling Silifant screenplay just wasn't up to snuff. And so they, you know, they started bringing in, you know, the, the big guns and, um, 
you know, not that Sterling Silifant wasn't, wasn't a big gun at that time. He was, but you know, it probably just turned into a whole lot of people with, you know, with, with big ideas and, you know, executives earning their paycheck, you know, everybody's got an opinion and, and it, it got sort of, you know, bogged down in development hell, which happens. Silifant <laughs> to me is very hit or miss because I know his adaptation of uh, the Travis McGee book was not good. Um, but then I've seen other things that have been fantastic. I mean, you look at his credits and you go, here's a guy who's clearly prolific. And I think there were projects that he cared about. And then, and then I think there were things that he rushed or maybe even kind of farmed out on the side a little bit. <laughs> the first draft of Salem's Lot was like, well, you know, th- this was probably written in, in like a, a white heat or something. It wasn't planned out because it gets to a certain point, like, you know, 200 pages deep into a screenplay. And then it's just, holy shit, this is, this is wildly out of control. We got to wrap this up. And he just, just like drops a bomb in the middle of the story and says, all right, we're going to, we're going to bring it home. We got to get this done in 20 pages. And it's just, it's crazy. I don't know what happened there, but I'm glad it didn't get made. Do I remember correctly that Toby Hooper ended up cutting together a version that was theatrically released? I think they did put it out theatrically overseas. I think there's a European cut. It, that that's what was released. That's the shorter version that was released on home video. Which which I think just. I mean, I haven't I haven't seen that actually. I didn't rewatch that when I was working on the book, so I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But, you know, I can remember remember the VHS, and and it was. I just remember it was it was shorter. I think it you know it retained all of the kind of action you know kill scenes or scare scenes, but you know chopped a lot of the. Um, you know, the sort of character dialogue scenes to the point point that it became a little bit incoherent. Did they just announce another adaptation of Salem's Lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I th- in fact, it, it, it may even be shooting right now. But yeah, um, yeah. Gary Doberman, who wrote the, um, the It movies, I know wrote the screenplay and I think might be directing it too. And how was it trying to assail that mountain of The Shining? <laughs> it's daunting, but... I, I'm an obsessive. I mean, that was like, that was like, you know, kind of going after the Holy grail. Like let's, let's figure this out and see if we can figure this out, you know, on a, on a deeper level than anybody else has, because I mean, there's plenty of very intelligent books written about the shining. And, and so, you know, it's, it, it's a big um, challenge, but I found quite a bit of research on that and, and, and actually quite a bit of material that, I, I didn't get into the Kubrick archives, um, but Diane Johnson's uh, papers are collected at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas, and that was probably a treasure trove of of a few hundred, you know, pages from different drafts of scripts and partial treatments, and then handwritten notes and little doodles, and I mean, and 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 it's not at least at least as I received that material, it was not organized. And so the challenge was kind of going, all right, the, you know, the, the, these are production drafts. So I'm looking at the colored pages, trying to figure out which one came first and then putting everything together and trying to fill in the blanks. What, you know, why did this change? You know, why, why were they thinking about a scene like this here or changing the scene in this way here? And, and when you create kind of a timeline of all that material and all the different drafts, all the different partial drafts, all the different notes, and then you you sort of pull together 
the you know hundreds of interviews that different people have given related to that film, uh, although there aren't that many interviews that Kubrick or Diane Johnson have given about it, but they've given enough that you can take all of these bits and pieces, all these different fragments and sort of make a timeline and go, all right, let's just go through this from beginning to end and try to figure it out. Um, and, and that's what I did. And that's, you know, yeah, it's, it, there were days where I was definitely pulling my hair out going, I don't know that I can make sense out of this because there's too much conjecture in trying to put the pieces together. But I think I worked through most of that because I really didn't want to be relying on on guesswork. And so I just kept asking questions and looking for new sources of information to try to fill the gaps. And then, and then of course, at the end of the whole process, what I, what I do, you know, for, for each of these projects is to, you know, try to get in touch with the, um, the screenwriter if they're still around and just sort of, you know, do, do like a cleanup interview and just say, you know, a lot of, you, you know, you've talked this thing to death, obviously in the past, and I won't make you go through all that, you know, stuff that's already kind of out there, but but here's some things that I don't think you've talked about or that I'm still wondering about and wondering if you can clear up. And, you know, she had she had a, actually a fair amount of, of insight just into, you know, what what Kubrick wanted and why he was trying to do things. And she really, you know, saw her role as trying to kind of deliver what what he wanted. It, you know, although I think there's a lot of a lot of her in it, too, just because she did have that that background in Gothic literature. She was teaching Gothic literature, which is why he you know, hired her to write the script with him. She's definitely, her voice is in there as well. That was really remarkable because during my research on The Shining, I had read a little bit from her, but not nearly as much as you were able to get. I thought it might be an awkward interview, frankly, because she's, she's, she's a very accomplished novelist. She's a very intelligent woman. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to be that geek coming and asking her about The Shining for the eight millionth time. And, you know, how long ago was, though? I mean, give it a rest. And and she was actually, you know, very nice. And there were definitely some things where she just kind of said, yeah, no, you're deep in the weeds and I have no idea. But she enjoyed the conversation, uh, I think. And she enjoyed the book. I sent her the book and and she was really impressed. I mean, actually, her her comment on the book was, you know, I think that what you've written here is is a new book that it's going to be kind of a new Bible for Kubrick researchers because there's stuff in here. I mean, she said there's a lot of stuff in here that I didn't know and I co-wrote the movie. She may just have forgotten some of it, but that's what she said. So I, you know, said, all right, I'll I'll take it. What was the most surprising thing you learned while you were doing your research on these three films? Probably the most exciting discovery for me was something that I didn't even know to look for initially, which was the pilot for the Salem's Lot TV series that was written by Robert Block. I mean, that I didn't, I, I'd heard that there was going to be a spinoff TV series. And I think this is another one of these things that Stephen King had just kind of thrown out in an interview or two. Oh, they were going to make, they were going to, you know, turn it into a TV series. And I sure as hell am glad they didn't do that because they would have, you know, screwed it up. And so I thought, wow, it must have never really gotten very far. It must have just been an idea and, and nothing ever happened with it. Well, it turns out that, you know, Robert Block wrote a pilot. I mean, you know, the guy who wrote Psycho wrote, it's the, just, that's, that was, that was mind blowing to me. And I just stumbled, I'd never even heard that. Actually, I think, I think I found out later, I was reading Robert Block's autobiography and he did make a reference. I don't think he said he wrote the pilot, but he did say something about working on it or having meetings on it or something. 
you know, so, but, but, but this thing was that, that was another thing I found in the archives at UCLA. And there were also 10 uh, treatments for episodes, including one that was co-written by Stephen King, or at least attributed to Stephen King. That's a little section of the book, just because that was, that, that was a discovery. As far as I know, I'm not, I, I mean, you know, I even have a buddy who's written uh, a, a book, you know, a bibliography of everything that Stephen King has ever you know, written and published, or I, I think it's even the unpublished stuff. And he didn't know about it. So I said, well, that's a, that's a discovery. So, I mean, when you can, when you can make a discovery like that, you feel like, all right, I'm really, you know, I'm not an academic, but I'm almost breaking, you know, I'm breaking new ground here. <laughs> I discovered something. So that stuff like that is hugely exciting. And I've got actually a couple of things already like that in volume two, but I'm not going to tell you about them yet. Well, I do want to hear a little bit about volume two. Which movies are you covering and, and how's that been going? It'll probably be a, a thicker book just because it's going to cover all of the uh, commercial film and television adaptations of the Night Shift stories. That's, that's a lot. You know, there aren't as many remakes in there. A lot of those films are not as well thought of. They probably individually won't get as, as much coverage, as many pages, you know, per title. Although there's, you know, the, the Children of the Corn chapter is pretty substantial. All the sequels alone. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't get too deep. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of sticking to the adaptations. And so I will sort of skim the surface of the, of the sequels. But I, I didn't get too deep into that because, you know, you're really not dealing with, with adaptation anymore. You're dealing with uh, somebody going, all right, we can make some you know, money off of Stephen King's name here. And then I'll pay you five bucks to go come up with a story and make a movie and we'll you know, we'll exploit that, that connection for everything it's worth. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the source story. A lot of the time, it's a pretty thin kind of, so there's not much to say about them from a, from a storytelling perspective, but, you know, but there's, but there's some stuff that even films that I'm not that enthusiastic about doing these in-depth studies makes me appreciate things that I hadn't even noticed before. I've always been a little bit of an apologist for two <laughs> Stephen King movies that came out in the nineties, I'm just going to out myself here. I, I'm, a, I'm actually kind of a fan of graveyard shift and, and to probably a slightly lesser degree, but I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the mangler because of how unremittingly nasty both of those movies are. They're, they're just so dark. And that's true to the tone of the night shift stories before Stephen King became this mainstream horror author and was writing novels that always kind of, you know, have a happy ending. <laughs> you know, they, they, these, the, the short stories always are just unremittingly bleak. They're written by a young man who had a very bleak outlook on life. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's living in a, in a trailer and drinking too much and he's never going to make it as a writer and he's going to just drink himself to death as a high school English teacher. You know, and he was even, you know, and, and grew up in blue collar jobs and his mom died of cancer around the time he was writing all that, you know, died fairly young because, you know, the job type of environments she'd had to work in to put him through school. And, you know, I think just a lot of anger and bitterness. I mean, if he hadn't turned to horror, I think Stephen King you know, was, was trying certainly to be this naturalist literary writer. You know, that, that bleak worldview. I mean, while, while there's a lot of the kind of EC Comics uh, story elements in Night Shift, I think the tone of those stories is literary naturalism. And so, I, I, you know, there's something I like about those films being that, that sort of fusion of just go for broke 
bleak, nasty tone with just EC Comics kind of silliness. <laughs> I've I've already written a chapter on Graveyard Shift, which I'm I, I'm really excited about. I really enjoyed that chapter. I haven't gotten to the Mangler yet, but I'm looking forward to that. So you know, it's going to certainly be a different book because volume one is is these you know three titles that are three of the greatest uh, you know not only novels, horror novels, but you know films. And now we're going to kind of look at the other side of things. <laughs> The you know films that do not have have, have those uh, solid reputations, but I think there's I think you know uh, talking to the writers, I, there's just as much to talk about, and the writers put just as much thought into it. Uh, things weren't always executed as well, but it, it you know it, it is fascinating to hear those stories and then go watch those films because I mean I watch them in a completely different way now. Do you have an ETA on when the second volume's coming out? You know, depending on my on my day job and how fast I can write, I'd love to have uh, the book written by the end of this year or early next year. But then publication, I, I you know, I've given up trying to uh, predict publication timelines because I think it took about a year and a half between my delivering the manuscript and the publisher putting out volume one. And I don't, I don't know, you know, obviously COVID happened <laughs> during that that time it was a crazy year for everybody but i you know i don't know what the uh details were there you know what 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 all the things that caused the delay so i, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess i'm i'm just going to try to get it done and then i'm going to uh take a breath and uh figure out if i want to start volume 3 right away <laughs> so in the meantime you can get adapting stephen king volume 1 from mcfarland press and wherever better books are sold please <laughs> well, Joseph, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Always nice to talk to you, Mike. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from His lighthouse evermore. But to us He gives the keeping. Pick you up after school. The other kids, they think I'm weird. Carrie, favorite poem? Did you bring one? I don't want to be. I want to be normal. Wipe that smile off your face. I have to try and be a whole person before it's too late. <laughs> Help this little girl see the sin of her days and ways. She'd made innocent the curse of blood. Mama, it's not even in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. Go to your closet and pray. No. No! <laughs> You pray, little girl. You pray for forgiveness. If I concentrate hard enough, I can make things move. There are other people out there like me who can do what I can do. You know a devil never dies. Keeps coming back. You gotta keep killing him. No! The problem is next week. You don't have a date already. Maybe you want to go with me. Mama, I've been asked to prom. No, no, no. They're gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. Mama, stop it. The two of you are planning some kind of joke on a poor, lonely girl. 
your king and queen are. We are back and we are talking about Carrie and I've mentioned a lot of these sequels slash remake kind of things that were going on over the years. There was a musical, there was an episode of Riverdale, which kind of had the musical as part of it. One thing that I didn't read about that much when I was doing my research on Carrie was the 1997 film from the Philippines. Basically, it's a remake of Carrie, Anak Ngdilim, uh, which tells a story about this uh, girl that is being picked on in high school who has telekinetic powers and they dump a big old bucket of blood on her, which is kind of hilarious because uh, Philippines, because of the culture, a lot of the movies in English, I can't find a subtitled uh, version of it, but there is a lot of English in there. What is telekinesis? Telekinesis is the movement of an object or inanimate body without apparent external cause. It is also explained as the alleged power of a spiritualist medium to bring about such movements without direct or observable contact. Ano to? Ate, ano? Ano to? And then when you come to the big, it's not really a prom, it's more like a beauty contest kind of thing that's going on at the end. When the sparks start to fly in that scene, it's like you're looking at... You know, we talked about the $1.6 million or $1.8 million budget of, of Carrie back in 1976. It looks like you got maybe two, three hundred bucks because there's a lot of plastic white resin shares just flying around. <laughs> it's nice. It's a, as far as I can tell without the subs, it's a, a good attempt. And I really kind of liked it. And I actually liked it a little bit more than I did the 2013 remake, which actually has Carrie White wow. flying at one point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh man, that was painful. Yeah, I was uh, looking forward to the Kimberly Pierce version of Carrie. I'm not opposed to to remakes as long as it's as long as it's approached from a different kind of perspective. And what else can we mine from this? Uh, and I, I I was hopeful that she would. Maybe I need to watch it again. But I, I, it didn't feel like it added any pathos. You know, there was nothing missing from De Palma's version. That was present in Kimberly's version. I don't, I didn't feel. Maybe I'm mistaken. Do you feel the same way, Keith, or did you see it? Or I'm going to be very uninteresting for this part of it because I've never seen any of the other versions. So I'll, I'll make some, some noises of, of, of surprise. I mean, I've read about them, I've read reviews of them, but I've never sat and watched them because. You know, that kind of for me fell on a little bit in the life is too short. Category. Yeah. Oh, no, I gotcha. But I'm actually interested in hearing hearing you guys talk about them because, like the, the Philippines one, now I'm like, I kind of want to see that. Um, that sounds actually pretty cool. So available in full on YouTube. The big criticism over the Kimberly Pierce version, the the one that was most uh, all over the internet, was uh, you're casting Chloe uh, Moretz as Carrie, and she is obviously such a beautiful girl. But my feelings about that character. If you lived in that environment, if that was what you knew, and if you had this power that you felt made you different and you felt compelled to keep secret, it doesn't matter how pretty you are. Internally, you're going to feel like 
an oppressed alien, like you don't belong. Uh, so I didn't necessarily go along with that widespread criticism of it. I just didn't think it added anything to the material. Well, it was a strange adaptation, too, because part of it is, let's go back to the King book and bring in some of these things that were missing, like the stones at the beginning. Okay, the whole dirty, what are those? Oh, you know, your dirty pillows, those kind of things. All right, cool. But then you're also getting things like red. I knew it would be red. And it's like, well, actually, that was in the book, but she's wearing a pink dress. So you get Chloe saying, no, mama, it's pink. And if you had a dollar for every time that she says mama in the movie, you're going to be just blitzed out of your mind because it's just mama, mama, mama the whole time. I really like Julianne Moore in it. I think they really played up the self-violence a lot more than they do with Piper Laurie. One of the first times where you see, and you get to see like how fucked up her arms look because she's like a cutter and has done all this damage to herself in order to kind of punish herself for unclean thoughts. And anytime that Carrie upsets her and you get the scene too, where she's got uh, scissors in her leg and blood's dripping down. But the first time when she starts to do that, it almost felt like a little S and M type of thing. Like she was getting uh, turned on by the self mutilation, but then they kind of dropped that. And I was like, Oh, that would have been interesting if she actually gets some sort of sexual pleasure from the way that she's, you know, manipulating Carrie, but mostly manipulating her body and doing damage to her body. I was like, okay, well that kind of plays into Piper Laurie's orgasm at the end of Carrie, but they really kind of dropped that. So I didn't, see that carried through. I agree a little bit with the criticism as far as Chloe being just way too pretty for the role. But when it came to Chris and Sue, they were so bland to me that I just really, there were times where I, I know one's brunette and one's blonde. That's great because otherwise I really couldn't tell the two characters apart. Sometimes I was just like, who are these girls? There was just no, recognizability to them sometimes like one i can't remember the, the name of the actress um aubrey plaza the chris character looked like her a little bit and then the sue character just looked like generic blonde actress no offense to the actress but i was just like who are you you don't really have personality you're really not bringing it i'm, I'm, just, I'm sure she won't take offense to that by the way if she's you know, listening. I, I hope not <laughs> yeah <laughs> And then I listened to the audio commentary and Kimberly Pierce just kept saying like, oh, well, this is a superhero origin story. And I'm like, well, it's not really a superhero origin story. It's more of a supervillain origin story because of the way that she got fucked over in her life. You know, this is Carrie would have been a great supervillain, really, because she's damaged and will never not be damaged. She's like. Dr. Doom levels of damage, like, oh, I have a little scratch in my face. I will kill the world, like that type of thing. So, so the, so the approach was that, that prom scene was an example of self empowerment. She's finally f embraced her power. Well, that's interesting. What's funny is I think there's a little of that actually in the Palmas carry. I just think it's integrated in a way that makes sense. It's not a you go girl. Yeah, no, exactly. No. <laughs> Though we might feel like that as viewers, like, oh, good, everybody's getting their due, even the people that actually don't deserve it. I'm a bloodthirsty bastard that way. And there's also the the rage colon carry two man that suffers from really bad video effects. And they make the main actress suffer by like, I, I don't know if they 
just overplucked your eyebrows or something, but I was just like, you look a little alien just because your eyebrows are just pretty much gone. She looks like pink from uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. It's like, you know, maybe an eyebrow pencil would have saved the entire town. Maybe. By the way, it's important to note that colon is actually, it's, it's actual colon. It's not the word colon as part of the title. So anyone at home looking this up, The Rage Colon is a totally different movie. That's usually what I have after Mexican food. <laughs> but I mean, they bring some interesting things to that too, as far as, uh, it's based on a little bit of a true story. This whole idea of, you know, these a-hole jocks and they're like collecting points by sleeping with different girls and they have this whole point system. And then whoever sleeps with not Carrie, <laughs> I can't remember that character's name but her will get all kinds of points and they have it on video so it's this kind of like you know they they do update the story in both that and the 2013 because they end up posting carrie her most humiliating moment in the shower they post that uh, on youtube in the 2013 version and the 1999 version sorry the rage colon carrie too they um end up having that displayed like her having sex with i think it's the jason london character that they have that being played on the all these tvs at their big party at the end of the movie where she goes ape shit and kills everybody and again it kind of suffers because the special effects just aren't there and there's one moment where carrie or not carrie comes back and is visiting jason london after she's dead and she turns into like dust and and falls to the ground and it's just like wow those effects just did not age very well at all i mean they're like spawn level effects of just how bad they are well it's interesting how there have been so many versions of the story i I guess it all comes down to at its root obviously De Palma's film is the best of them there's a universality there's a relatability and that's what makes it so effective in De Palma's hands. It's grounded in some in humanity. It was even a musical, right? There was a musical version of Carrie. Yeah, yeah and apparently it's still done all over in like schools and high school. I mean, apparently it's, it, it actually does very well. It died on Broadway, but but you know it, it still performed all over the place today. Yeah, and then yeah, I saw that Riverdale episode where they actually are putting on the musical at their high school. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a, you know, thing within a thing. You know, as I'm watching this, I'm just like, oh, okay, this is interesting that you're going to do that. We're going, period, 70s glamour, just like the Sissy Spacek movie. And I want you to be our videographer. I'm in. I was reading about some interesting parodies, like uh, the Running with Scissors troupe did one. I can't, I can't remember what it was called, like scary, inst- but spelled with an R R I E instead of a Y. And there were a couple other ones where it's just like, oh, okay, this sounds like they're you know parodies of stuff. I think one of my favorite looks ever on RuPaul's Drag Race, I think it was Raja. She was wearing this white dress with red all over it, and I think she had a tiara maybe with blood on it, and the blood led up to a tipped over bucket. All as a big headpiece. When she walked out on the runway with that, I was just like, oh my fucking God, that is amazing. All these pop culture references are way over my head. If you just put in RuPaul's Drag Race and Carrie, you get a whole bunch of images, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> wow. Prop courtesy of Sher- Sherwin-Williams. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just one, one thing. If anyone ends up visiting Hermosa Community College, 
to see those gymnasium doors. Just the exterior was shot there. I think the interior of the gymnasium is a different location. Well, actually, it was a build. The, the prom set itself was, was a huge set. I remember Fisk saying, like, I had never built a set that big before. The Arrow disc that they put out a few years ago actually has a video extra of a guy visiting a lot of the carry locations, including the slaughterhouse. Like, that that painting was, like, a that real mur- mural still there. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's yeah. It's amazing. It's Farmer John. It's it's really creepy. I've driven by it. And and forgetting any connection to Carrie, it's creepy just because it's a bunch of happy little pigs in a place where they kill pigs. So it's, like, it, it's weird just all by itself. It's a very surreal piece of strangeness. Did you play play the Donaggio score when you drove past it? Like, yeah. da-da-da. I never get that why you use animals that are... are the meat to sell the food that you're about to eat. It's like, what? (laughs) I hate Chick-fil-A, but at least like that kind of makes sense when the cows are writing, like eat more chicken, like, okay, very, you know, kind of twisted, but, but uh, yeah, when it's like the happy pig, like, come on, eat my ass, you know, Which is going to be now the new slogan. They're going to like, you know, it's going to be on the package of bacon. Carrie's still going today. I, if there was the 2002 version we didn't mention, which was actually a pilot movie for a Carrie TV series, which would have been interesting because Carrie survives. And then it would have been her. I don't know if she would have been looking for other psychic kids, kind of like the end of Stephen King's book where there's another girl that has power. That was the thing to, sorry, just going back to uh, the sequel, which didn't make any sense to me, which was that they keep talking about how Oh, Ralph White, Carrie's dad, slept with this not Carrie character with her mom. So Ralph White impregnated, like she's Carrie's half sister is basically it. And so I guess Ralph carried the gene that then helps when it comes to, you know, telekinesis. Like, all right, great. You know, Ralph's a telekinetic carrier. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I do really like too, and this is just a little caddy. I do like there's a mistake in Stephen King's book because at one point they talk about how Ralph died while Margaret was pregnant, and then there's another part where they talk about how uh, she was going to kill Carrie, and then after uh, she doesn't kill Carrie, Carrie's in a um, like in her bassinet, and I want to say her bottle is flying around. But then Ralph comes and grabs the bottle. It's like, wait, no, Ralph's been dead for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was before the coke came in, so King should have caught that one. Well, it's also weird to me like that with any book when nobody catches it and when no one actually ever like proofreads it or goes, wait a minute. Yeah. Your character was dead here. How can this be? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. For the genre it is usually placed in, which is horror, the most kind of disreputable (laughs) of of genres, it, it, it indicates the power of the movie and its uniqueness in that it was so beloved by the Academy. With with nominations for its performances, Spacek and Piper Laurie were nominated, right? Yeah, Un- unheard of. Well, I think the closest we got to that was I want to say Ellen Burstyn was nominated for The Exorcist, and I always saw Carrie as being a little bit like Reagan because I want to say that Reagan started having 
her, let's say, problems right around the time of her uh, first period. It was pretty much that same. Of course, she had her period before Carrie did. You know, I think Carrie was 16 or 18, depends on how you read the book. I guess it's, I want to say they say 16 in the book, but then she's graduating high school. So okay. You know, it felt like it was the senior thing, but anyway, yeah, I I find that those two characters really kind of speak to each other as far as like the empowerment or disempowerment of women. And especially when you look at Chris, when you look at um, the Ellen Burstyn character, the single mother and how she's being kind of blamed for the problems with her daughter because she's a single mother, as opposed to Margaret White, who is also a single mother, but in is not being necessarily. She deserves the blame. <laughs> she deserves the blame. Yeah. Are you talking about the book or the film that has the, the kind of the minstrel aspect to it? I want to say it was the book, but I think even in the film, you can kind of figure out that she's just about to go through the, the change of life as, as instead of bleeding, she, she pees on herself. Yeah. And that's, that's the first sign. Yeah. Maybe she's having bladder control issues and that's the first sign of possession. She really needs to drink more cranberry juice. I want to thank my co-hosts, Keith and Jamie. So Jamie, what's been keeping you busy lately? I'm still writing the book, still researching uh, um, on my Krista Helm, Who Killed Krista Helm book, 187 pages in, and uh, still working at it. Did you figure it out who killed her? No. Oh, no. Okay. Maybe by 188. You know, there's maybe. There's something with, you know, it's, since this is a filmmaking podcast, movie makers talk about you know, you don't so much finish a project as much as you abandon it because you could work on it forever. There might come a time when I just have to say, okay, I'm finished with this book. I might not have found out who killed her, <laughs> but I don't have another 20 years left to, to, to get to the bottom of this, but I'm doing my very best. How long have you been working on it? I've only been working on the book since December of last year. I've been working on the case for the past seven years. It's, it's difficult because it was way back in 1977 and that there's a lot of, if you survived that decade in Hollywood, which a lot of people didn't, it, a lot of times it's hard for them to recollect what exactly happened in the seventies. <laughs> it's the, some of the Bart fully there, but they're, they survived, which is enough, but uh, it has its challenges. And Keith, what about you? What's been keeping you busy, sir? Mostly the thing that has kept me busy for most of the last 30, 40 years are just trying to piece together projects. You know, the endless chasing of financing and actors. And uh, it's always a, it's always a Sisyphusian task uh, to try to make independent movies because there's lots of great reasons not to economically. So you're always trying to find ways to convince people to go, yeah, I know that this isn't particularly a wildly commercial piece of material and I know it's difficult and I know it won't work unless we get amazing actors and I know it's really risky, but give me your money. So, uh, so you know, I'm, I'm just out there trying to do that the best I can. You know, it's particularly, I think, challenging now. I think the COVID of it all has really kind of undermined a lot of the models everybody was used to in terms of theatrical releases and all that, but there isn't really a new model that's in place yet. So I, the level of timidity that I'm feeling from companies that even weren't normally so timid, it seems extremely high. So I have a couple of things that, you know, are inching their way along, but it, it's, boy, it, it is, it's always a slow process, but I would say the last year and a half has been an ultra slow process. So we'll see, you know, they'll happen or they won't. I've, I've learned to be very sort of just stoic and go, it'll happen when and if it's supposed to happen. 
But come on, there's there's Netflix now and Amazon Prime and Tubi and Disney Plus. I mean, all these places are just clamoring for content. I'm sure they're just throwing money at your feet. Yes, of course. No, that is that's that, that's that's what every day is like. I'm 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 sifting between the the, the the millions that are being thrown my way. No, it's been amazing. I mean, I have stuff I'm, without getting into names of people or actors, or, but there are things where where given the people who are involved and want to do it, I would have thought this wouldn't be hard. And even at, it's like, no, it's really hard. So it's, it seems to be a strange time for that because I feel like with some of the same people attached to projects, not that many years ago, we'd be doing it by now. So it's a, it's an odd moment. Well, thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Email sales at advertisecast.com to inquire about advertising on the projection booth. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Man.
remember I'm not the only one with blood on his hands. Now I realize you've got a bone to pick, but even for me, this drink's pretty damn sick. I've got one last little beat, and then my plan's complete for a night that you'll never forget. Giving it, giving it. Norma, what are you doing? Uh, Sue, hi. I didn't expect to see you here tonight. Oh, God, you're underdressed. What are you up to? Nothing. What's going on? I'd love to stop and chat, but I'm on official ballot duty. But stick around, Sue. It's going to be the best prom night ever. (laughs) 